so that, that's us live con we've got all um with six members present at the minute and the first witness is, is ready okay thank you and uh, uh so members i declare the meeting now open to the public online I'd like to welcome all the members and our witnesses who are participating participating by video conferencing to maintain social distancing. And can I remind members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices? Members, item one on our agenda today is in relation to the Severe Fetal Impairment Abortion Amendment Bill. And today we are receiving a briefing from the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Um, I refer members to the written paper submission from CEDAW, which is a tab 1.1 of your pack, and to the CEDAW report, which is a tab 1.2. I can advise that a member of the CEDAW committee is joining us from Algiers today, and is here to brief the committee, and that we, we will be using an interpreter for the purpose of the session. So um, I would now like to welcome Miss Louisa Chalal, who is a committee member on the Committee of for, on the Dis Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Good morning, Miss Chalal. Can you hear me okay? So we're not we're not hearing you just yet, Louisa. Um, I'm not sure if that's a microphone issue. I can see you, but I cannot hear you at this point. Uh, and now, do I you hear me? Do you hear me, Mr. Yes, now I can hear you. Uh, good morning. I, I can indeed. Good morning, uh, Louisa Tafalcherot. You're very welcome. Thank, thank you. you. And we're also joined today. Yes. Yeah. And we're also joined by an, our interpreter for the meeting, who is Cindy Adonai from Flex Language Services. Cindy, can you hear us okay? Uh, yes, I can. Hello, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning, Cindy. I I can hear you there, Cindy, but I can't see you just uh, just as yet. But uh, we will we will carry on, and uh, as long as we have the audio, that is the main thing. So, just in terms of in terms of members, just in, information for members. Um, we had we had suggested the members and provided the facility for members to provide written questions in order to. Uh, assist with the with the the running and the timing of this session um it's obviously i'm very conscious that we have the minister and the chief medical officer on a very tight time frame coming in at 10 o'clock so i don't want to run over i need into that time either so if i could ask members um to to bear that in mind and to be as brief as possible with questions and recognizing that there is an additional element of difficulty with it today but I'd like to very much welcome both ladies to the committee and I'll go back to you, uh, Louisa, to see if you would like to give the, the committee a short presentation and then take some questions. Thank you. Please, good morning all. Can I speak in French, please? Yes? Oui. 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 Je, peux com Je peux commencer, Monsieur le Président Je peux commencer. I, oui, oui, commencez. Voilà. Commencez, oui. 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 Euh, monsieur le Président, je vous remercie de me donner l'occasion de présenter notre point de vue sur l'amendement visant à supprimer euh, l'avortement en cas de malformation fœtale grave. 
je ne vais pas trop loin, Madame euh, l'interprète. Alors, bonjour Louisa, euh, je vais oui. vous demander de faire des phrases courtes. Comme oui. Ça, je peux vous suivre. Voilà, d'accord, ok. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Voilà. Alors, je vais être brève parce que vous avez déjà euh, reçu mon commentaire par écrit. Je so voudrais vous D'accord. Alors, euh, je ne veux pas insister sur la jurisprudence du comité en matière d'accès légal à l'avortement. Vous le connaissez, mais je vais me focaliser sur l'avortement dans le cas de malformation fœtale grave. Dans ce cas-là, so, notre... Oui Pardon, allez-y. Please, madame. J'ai dit que je n'allais pas rappeler la jurisprudence du comité en matière d'accès légal à l'avortement. Je vais juste me focaliser sur l'avortement en cas de malformation fœtale grave. So, I will just focus on the abortion. Uh, in case of um, a severe, severe, um, severe fetal impairment abortion. Voilà. Alors, le comité recommande systématiquement aux États so parties. The, the committee uh, systematically recommend uh, aux États parties de légaliser l'avortement en cas de malformation fœtale grave. To legalize abortion in case of severe fetal impairment. Et de le décriminaliser dans tous les autres cas. And to discriminalize, to discriminalize it in every Or, other cases. Oui. Le comité précise qu'il s'aligne sur le comité des personnes handicapées pour condamner. So the, So the committee is emphasizing that qu'il s'aligne sur le comité des personnes handicapées. So it's aligning on the committee of uh, people with uh, disabilities. Pour condamner les avortements sélectifs en fonction du sexe, du sexe et du handicap. To condemn Abortion. Uh, yes, selective abortion uh, with en regard du, sex oui. and handicap. Sex or gender or handicap. Le comité recommande aussi, dans ses, lors des dialogues constructifs, euh, la reconnaissance par les États partis de l'autonomie reproductive des femmes l'autonomie reproductive des femmes. 
you... the committee recommend in uh, her, in uh, its uh, uh, dialogue uh, to respect the liberty the yes mm -hmm. the liberty of choice of women concerning uh, the maternity est-ce que ça peut est-ce que vous comprenez j'essaye de vous aider madame hein? do you do you do you understand is that all right bon le fait oui. de refuser un avortement le fait de refuser so, un avortement so the fact of refusing an abortion dans le cas dans les cas recommandés par notre comité in the recommended cases uh, by our committee constitue une violation constitue une violation des obligations des états partis envers la CEDO constitue so une violation uh -huh. une violation des obligations des obligations des obligations des états partis envers la CEDO the um, the state parties are towards the CEDO yes uh, uh, violation of obligation of the state party hein, toward the CEDO la décision de poursuivre une grossesse à la suite d'un diagnostic de malformation fœtale, la décision de poursuivre une grossesse dans le cas d'une malformation fœtale doit incomber exclusivement à la femme. Can you or uh, please could you uh, translate? Non. So, sorry, it, it seems we've lost the interpreter of the call. We'll just try and get them back on. Okay, so we'll just we'll just pause for a moment, Eloisa. We will suspend for just for we'll not suspend the meeting. We will just await uh, getting the interpreter back on the line. Thank you. Okay. Merci. Thank you. Merci. Hello. Hello. On peut poursuivre. Hello, back. Ah, okay. So just let me check. Yes, just just yes, just let me check. It, yes, so I think we have you back on the line, Cindy. And Louisa, yeah. if you could repeat your your yes. last sentence. Or oui. Merci. Ah, je vous en prie. Je disais que le fait de refuser un avortement. So the fact of refusing an abortion. Et dans le cas d'altération fœtale grave, dans le cas de malformation fœtale, oui. In the case of a, a fetal constitue une violation des obligations de l'État parti envers la CEDO. Voilà. Le fait de refuser un avortement porte atteinte à, porte atteinte à l'autonomie reproductive des femmes. 
à l'autonomie reproductive des femmes. The liberty, the reproductive yes, liberty the, the of women. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. Mais viole le droit à la vie privée et à l'égalité. But it breaches um, the private life mm -hmm. and equality. And equality. Ainsi, ainsi que les droits à la vie, à la santé et à la protection contre la torture ou les mauvais traitements. And also, um, can you repeat, please, uh, Louisa? Ainsi que les droits à la vie. Ainsi que les droits à la vie. Also, the rights of to life. Eat. Yes, mm -hmm. la santé et à la the protection. Health. Yes, protection the against the torture. Yes, et à la protection, protection contre les tortures. Against, tor oh, against torture. Ill treatment and also ill treatments. Mm -hmm. Alors, il incombe uniquement à la femme enceinte la décision de poursuivre sa grossesse, même en cas de malformation fœtale. So, it's, it's only the, on the woman to decision, decision. her decision to pursue her pregnancy oui. in case Et of malformation fœtale. In case of severe fetal impairment. La convention aux droits des the personnes handicapées, la convention relative aux droits des personnes handicapées est très claire. The convention for the people with disability is very clear. Sur le fait que l'avortement devrait être disponible dans les cas de déficience fœtale. Sur le fait que on the fact that abortion should be available or an option in the case of oui. severe fetal impairment. Euh, je ne vais pas vous relire la déclaration conjointe du CEDO et de la commission. I would, oui. mm -hmm. I will not uh, read again, read over the declaration of the CEDO. Et du comité des personnes handicapées. Mais si vous le désirez, je peux le faire. And the committee of the people with uh, disabilities, but if you wish, I can do it. Because je, I already mentioned it in my uh, comments that I submit to you. We and that and and Cindy that and Louisa that is fine. We have we have had your papers in front of us and we can see those. So uh, we don't need to go over all of those today. But so okay. thank you. That's fine to to. Okay. Yeah. Alors, lorsque je me réfère aux conclusions de l'enquête menée en 2018 en Irlande du Nord sur l'accès à l'avortement. When I refer to the conclusion of the inquiry uh, conducted uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, en 2018 sur l'accès à l'avortement. In 2018, uh, on the access uh, of uh, abortion. Nous constatons aujourd'hui, nous constatons aujourd'hui que l'accès à l'avortement en Irlande du Nord reste problématique. So we realize today that the action. The access of abortion in um, Northern mm. Ireland 
reste problématique is a, yes, is a, uh, is an Yes, is a con Surtout dans les cas de malformations gra fœtales graves. Especially in the case of severe fetal impairment. Les structures obstétricales en Irlande du Nord, ainsi que le dépistage prénatal, sont peu nombreux et ne disposent pas de moyens adéquats. Les structures obstétricales ou les services d'avortement. So the obstetrical uh, structure or services of abortion. Ainsi yes. que les dépistages prénatales, les dépistages, the diagnostic. So the, the diagnosis or the screening for the pre-birth. Yeah. Sont peu nombreux. Are insufficient. Are not, uh, yeah, are insufficient indeed. And de ne, et ne dispose pas de moyens adéquats. And there's not um, any um, ways, um, uh, accurate ways. Voilà. Euh, mes commentaires. Les commentaires que My je vous ai envoyés, Monsieur le Président. So, Mr. the President, the comments that I've sent you sont basés sur deux arguments. So, are based on two arguments. Euh, dans l'esprit du droit international des droits de l'homme, in the spirit. So, in the spirit of uh, the human rights. Yes. L'accent est mis sur la mère en tant qu'individu ayant des droits. So the, the emphasis is put on the mother as an individual Indeed. having rights. Plutôt que sur son rôle social d'appareil reproducteur, plutôt que sur son rôle social. Ra rather than, yes, rather than her social role as um, reproductive. J'ai également indiqué que supprimer l'accès à l'avortement en cas de malformation fœtale grave. I also. So I also said that uh, in case of a Abortion uh, due to severe fetal impairment. Suppress, hein? Constitue une violation des obligations du Royaume-Uni au titre de la Convention CEDO. Constitue une violation. Constitute a violation of the United Kingdom towards uh, the CEDO. C'est pourquoi, it's the reason why. I propose to reduce the scope and to examine case by case the, the abortion in case of severe, severe fetal impairment. Sorry for me, English, it's not my mother tongue, but I try to. May we set, maybe? Uh, may I follow? Oui. Oui. Je, désolée, madame l'interprète, je veux vous aider aussi. Désolée, hein, mais... <rire> Merci. Merci, Alors, Votre anglais est très bien. Non, je sais. Alors, euh, il me semble que dans ce cas-là, dans le cas d'une base, au cas par cas, please... So, I believe in the case um, of... Um, in the option of a case by, by case, 
euh, we must, euh, nous devons définir au préalable so we must, uh, define, uh, on a pre -basis. le sévère feature impairment and serious handicap. Yes, so the severe fetal impairment as a serious and handicap. Et de même, l'obligation du dépistage also, anténatal. Also, the obligation of the screening, pre-birth pre screening. Cette approche est confortée par la réalité que décrit le document Research and Information Civil Bill Paper of, du 5 mars 2021. Mais peut-être je, je peux ne pas vous le lire, je vous ai donné les chiffres qu'il y avait dans um, ce papier. Je peux ne pas relire. So euh, I do not have to read, to read it, to read over again, as I yes, already provided yes, for it. Yes, Cindy, I, I, think, I think given that we have the papers in front of us, I think it may be a good idea now to move shortly or as soon as we can to members' questions. If you could, uh, if you could sit, repeat that back mm -hmm. to Louisa, please. Of course, of course. Uh, Louisa, uh, en fait, on n'a pas besoin de relire tout ça. Et oui. Ça vous va si on avance avec les questions du comité Oui, très bien. Mais euh, s'il yes, vous plaît, sure. je n'ai pas fini. Bon, mais puisqu'ils ont mon pape, il faut bien expliquer que la soumission... So, I, I'm, not, I'm not finished, but I know you have my, my comments. But, uh, so the submission... Euh, pour les questions, est-ce que je, si je ne peux pas répondre maintenant, est-ce que je peux les envoyer par écrit Ok, so if I cannot uh, answer to your questions just yet, can I send it to them uh, by email or something Mais Yes, that's fine. Please. Je voudrais yes. mettre l'accent sur mes interrogations de la dernière, où je dis que, où je demande. À la fin de so ma soumission, like, so I would like to emphasis to put the emphasis on my questions with regard um, the in the last of the submission because I mm -hmm. have uh, some uh, issue uh, to put. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Louisa. Yeah. Yes, I ask. Je voulais savoir si le ministère de la santé avait élaboré des orientations pour l'Irlande du Nord en collaboration avec les organismes de réglementation et les organismes professionnels pour clarifier ce que l'on entend par déficience fœtale grave et de sérieux handicaps. Ça, c'est ma première oui, question. Oui, oui. Alors, vous voulez... On va répéter, euh, étape Je veux savoir si le ministère de la Santé a donné des so instructions pour clarifier to clarify ce que l'on entend uh -huh. par déficience fœtale grave et sérieux handicap. So what we mean by uh, je crois savoir, je ne suis pas obstétricienne, que l'un so diagnostic. Un diagnostic. Yes. Non, je veux, voudrais savoir si 
un diagnostic d'anomalie fœtale est souvent posé aux alentours de la 20e semaine de grossesse. So, if a diagnosis of a, a fetal impairment uh, is based, 20e uh, semaine around the 20th uh, week of pregnancy, est-ce que le dépistage est-il aujourd'hui suffisant en Irlande du Nord Est-ce que l'Irlande du Nord prend en charge les personnes atteintes du syndrome de Down et autres handicaps so, is Northern Ireland is helping uh, people uh, with uh, Down syndrome or other handicap in Northern Ireland. Si le projet de loi est adopté, quel impact aura-t-il sur les femmes enceintes handicapées so if, uh, Le projet passes, de loi. Uh, passes, yes, the bill passes, uh, what would be the impact on the pregnant Uh, woman. Bon, je vais m'arrêter là parce que j'attends les questions. So I will stop here because uh, I am now ready for the question. Uh, merci, merci Louisa and uh, merci Cindy. So um, I, thank you. In, in relation to uh, Louisa's final point around supports, um, Donc, could she indicate what type of support? What type of supports would be required? Donc, Louisa, quel, quel type de, de support serait requis? Quel euh, type pour, de soutien serait requis? Pour euh, l'amendement? For the am am amendment? Um, no, uh, she, she, she outlined that, this, that there should be supports provided to women um, in these circumstances. And I wonder, could she illuminate or elaborate a bit on that? Thank you. Donc, Louisa, vous avez compris. En fait, vous avez mentionné uh, qu'un soutien devrait être apporté uh, aux femmes. Est-ce que vous pouvez uh, élaborer uh, par rapport à ça, s'il vous plaît? Oui, non, mais parce que vous savez, du fait que l'avortement en cas de malformation fœtale grave so, est très so difficile à diagnostiquer. OK. So est très... The, oui. The, So, in case of a severe uh, fetal impairment, the, dia the diagnosis, the screening is really, really uh, difficult. Et très souvent, et très souvent, il y a des statistiques. Uh -huh. Très souvent, euh, ils savent, les, les femmes sont obligées de mener à terme leur grossesse et à la naissance, l'enfant. Euh, ou présente un handicap très grave ou meurt. Donc nous, ce que l'on so voudrait, very... oui, allez-y. So very, very often, uh, the woman has to take the pregnancy to term, and it's at birth that they realize that there is a, uh, an impairment or a handicap. Euh, donc, il faudrait d'abord disposer de services d'avortement très efficaces. So we should have um, pre-abortion um, services very efficient. Well equipped, très bien équipés. Well equipped. Et implantés dans tous 
le sur tout le territoire de l'Irlande du Nord. Et que l'accès soit légal. And et, for like the access to be legal. et que les femmes puissent disposer de conseils et d'informations dans le cas où elles désirent poursuivre leur grossesse, même en cas de malformation fœtale grave. In the case where they they would wish to continue to pursue the the pregnancy even in case of severe fetal impairment. Il me semble que l'Irlande du Nord doit également soutenir les décisions éclairées prises par les femmes et leurs cliniciens. So I believe uh, that Northern Ireland should uh, support um, the decision made in full mind by women and their doctors. Okay, thank you. And listen, I want to get to some members' questions, so I'll, I'll go to members now. So I have indicating in the, in the following order, Paula, then Carol, then Pam. So go ahead, Paula Bradshaw, please. A question from Paula Bradshaw. Thank you. Um, good morning. Good morning. My question is in relation to um, the difficulties or the narrative between the rights of the mother and the rights of the unborn child in terms of disabilities. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to how you actually looked at the human rights aspects around uh, women and also the people living with disabilities. Thank you. Donc, uh, ma, question, ma question est en rapport avec uh, le droit des femmes et le droit uh, des enfants uh, nés. Oui, euh, mais vous savez, euh, le comité des droits des personnes en situation de handicap a développé toute une, toute une panoplie de mesures visant à protéger la femme enceinte handicapée et son enfant. Et même le comité euh, des droits des personnes handicapées reconnaît que de la nécessité de rendre accessible l'avortement. Ok, Louisa, est-ce que vous pouvez répéter ça en, en petite phrase comme ça, Oui, euh, bon, euh, vous savez, euh, du fait que le comité, du fait que le comité oh. reconnaisse, yes, so go. Due, due, due to the, for, that the committee recognizes, yeah? L'avortement. So the abortion. L'accès légal à l'avortement. The legal access to abortion. L'Irlande du Nord, pour les personnes Northern handicapées, doit soutenir so, les personnes. Uh, Northern Ireland should support the people with disabilities. Oui, durant tout au long de la grossesse, tout au long all de la grossesse, all throughout the pregnancy, et garantir que les femmes enceintes vont bénéficier de des conseils et de l'aide and, and, mm -hmm. and guarantee that the pregnant woman would have access to uh, advice support help 
pour mener leur grossesse à, ta, à terme. Hein. To, Quand to, elle... carry on, to carry on uh, their pregnancy to the term. Quant à l'enfant à naître, quant à l'enfant à naître, si le so, handicap... With regard, with regard the, the child uh, to be born. Si le handicap, si le handicap n'est pas très grave. So if the impairment or disability is not too uh, severe. Et si l'Irlande du Nord a les structures d'accueil, um, et si ils sont prêts, l'Irlande du Nord est prêt à prendre en charge, parce que c'est là la question pour uh, une maman. For a mother, yes, uh, and for the children handicapped, for the child handicapped, and for the child with disability. Voilà, c'est ça okay. surtout. Okay, Cindy, we, we, Cindy, we need to keep yes. it moving along, please. So, thank you, thank yes. you. Yeah. I, I want to. I want to. So we have two more members indicating now at this point. So I'm going now to Carol, please. A brief question. So I'm going now to Carol Nikhilin, and please a brief question and a brief as possible answer. Thank you. Okay. Oui, uh, merci. Um, so the current bill in front of the assembly. In your opinion, Loisa, is in contravention of uh, disability rights and the rights of women. So if this bill were to pass, does it mean then that the rights of women and access to health care will be denied? Please. Je n'ai pas compris. Vous voulez bien m'expliquer I don't listen. Um, yes. Yes. Can we please uh, repeat the question, please? So, in your opinion, Louisa, if this Donc, bill... Dans votre opinion, Louisa, oui. uh, yes. si, cette, uh, si ce projet de loi venait à passer, yes, please. Oui. So, if this bill were to pass, do you believe that it is in contradiction to rights for the disabled and also rights for women to access health care at the point of need. Donc, si ce projet de loi euh, venait à passer, est-ce que vous pensez que c'est une contradiction euh, par rapport euh, aux droits de la femme et aux droits euh, des, des enfants euh, Je m'excuse, mais je vais vous répondre très franchement. Euh, so, je I'm sorry, but I, I, will, I will answer really, really uh, frankly. Euh, nous insistons sur la liberté des femmes, l'autonomie des femmes à disposer de leur corps et de leur choix. So, Ils... we, we insist uh, on the autonomy of women to uh, dispose of their, their own will, euh, freedom. Oui. Euh, nous, au comité, on insiste pour que l'accès légal 
soit autorisé à l'avortement, soit autorisé dans tous les cas et qu'il soit même décriminalisé. Donc, so we par conséquent, et we insist for yes, Lisa. Nous insistons au sein du comité, c'est la jurisprudence du comité. L'accès of the committee, of the committee. Uh -huh. is to give access, a legal access to abortion in all cases and to decriminalize it in all cases also. That it means that the, this amendment may be, uh, may, would be in a violation of the obligation, the sorry, of Northern Ireland yes. uh, uh, in front of CEDO Committee. Désolé de vous parler yep. franchement. Thank, so thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. sorry. And listen, members, mem members, what we will do is if members feel their question has been misunderstood or there are additional questions or we don't get to some members' questions, we can also submit those by email and we'll ask CEDO to respond in that form following the meeting. So we're moving on now to Pam Cameron, our deputy. Pardon? Yeah. Pam, go ahead, please. Thank you, Chair. Uh, good morning, Louisa. Thank you very much for being at our committee today. Bonjour, Louisa. Merci beaucoup d'être dans notre comité aujourd'hui. I'm sure you'll be aware that uh, my party, the DUP, um, would have very differing views on, on what is a very sensitive issue, uh, in particular in Northern Donc, Ireland. Yeah. Donc, je suis sûre que vous êtes consciente que mon parti a des vues, un point de vue très différent, uh, en particulier en Irlande du Nord. Oui. Je um, yes. We are absolutely clear in our belief that life starts before birth. Um, that the unborn Donc, est... child of any ability has a, a right to life worthy of protection. Donc, on est très clair que chaque enfant uh, a le droit de vivre. Mm -hmm. I, I, will ask you, cas... I will ask you just one question because this is quite difficult this morning. D'accord, je vais vous poser une question parce que c'est oui. très difficile ce matin. Oui, effectivement. Yes. Oui, uh, oui, avec plaisir. Yes. So, yes, CEDA talk about um, approaching fetal impairment um, abortion on a case-by-case -case basis. Donc, CEDA, uh, CEDA uh, donc, parle d'approcher uh, l'avortement dans le, dans le cas par cas. Mm -hmm. So, okay. do you accept that this is impossible, given that substantial risk and impairment are terms not clearly defined by the medical profession. Sorry, can we break up the question, the last part, please? Do you accept, do you accept that it's impossible? Yes, thank you, go ahead. Given that substantial risk and impairment en raison des risques substantiels et de, de handicap. Our terms not clearly defined by the medical profession. Uh, que les termes ne sont pas clairement uh, définis uh, 
dans, par euh, les, les professions médicales. Merci, Madame Pam Cameron. Je n'ai pas, c'est avec plaisir que je vous re retrouve tous. Je n'ai pas très bien euh, compris la question parce qu'il y a des coupures de son. S'il vous plaît, un peu plus, une question un peu plus courte pour que je puisse vous répondre directement. So please, shorter question, so I can answer you uh, directly. Okay, I'll try again. Sorry. So, do you accept that it's impossible? Est-ce que vous acceptez que c'est impossible? Given that the terms substantial risk and impairment. Donc, en sachant que les termes substantiels avec... Euh, le handicap mm -hmm. are terms mm -hmm. that are not clearly defined by the medical profession. Donc, ce sont des termes qui ne sont pas clairement définis par les professions médicales. So, dealing with um, fatal impairment um, abortion on a case-by-case -case basis may Donc, be impossible. Euh, Donc, euh, yes. En fait, prendre le cas par cas pour les, les handicaps, ça peut être impossible. Oui, j'espère avoir bien compris. Je vous remercie de votre question. Il me, par... Il me paraît indispensable de définir ces deux concepts pour pouvoir... Euh, pour pouvoir euh, étudier l'avortement sur une base au cas par cas. Dans le cas so contraire, I, oui. Uh, Louisa, Louisa. So, um, so I believe it's essential. Mm -hmm. Dans mm -hmm. le cas contraire, ce serait impossible. Uh, Louisa, je pense qu'il va falloir reprendre la première partie. Donc, tu, vous disiez que. Oui, euh, je disais qu'il fallait définir ces deux concepts. So, It is essential to define uh, those two concepts. Je sais que c'est difficile. Je sais que c'est difficile. I know, I know it's difficult. I know. I know it's difficult. Eh, parce que, en dépit des progrès scientifiques, les. Il n'y a toujours pas de définition. Les, le corps médical ne sait toujours pas entendu sur une définition. So there is still no definition from um, the, the medics. C'est pourquoi il me paraît impossible. Euh, so that is the reason why the reason why um, it seems euh, to be impossible. Sans ces conditions, mais ce n'est pas la seule condition, parce que je parlais aussi du dépistage anténatal. C'est impossible d'accepter, d'adopter cet amendement dans ce cas-là. Euh, Amendment uh, in, this, in this case. 
D'autant en plus que ça, c'est un mauvais signal, c'est un recul des droits des femmes. So it's not a good signal, it's a step back with regard women, women rights. C'est tout ce que j'ai à dire. Voilà, merci. It's, it's all I have to say. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And going then to Jonathan Buckley. Jonathan, your question, please. Donc, on, on avance avec Jonathan. Thank you, Chair. And thank you, Louisa. Um, as reiterated by Pam, my view would, would differ quite substantially from CEDAW. But I would just like to ask, and I will keep it brief. Does CEDAW not... Sorry. Does CEDAW not uh, accept that, is, that its position in the 2018 report suggesting that this, the state can tackle negative stereotypes despite women retaining autonomy to abort a severely disabled baby is conflicting? Sorry, can we... Um donc, est-ce que CIDA n'accepte pas l'exposition? In the 2018 report suggesting that the state... Donc, euh, dans le rapport de 2018... Euh, en suggestion euh, à l'État. Can tackle negative stereotypes despite women retaining autonomy? Donc, on, on, on s'attaque euh, aux négatifs. Sorry, um, a... Jonathan, you were breaking up. So, yeah, yeah can, so, tackle, um, can tackle, you said? That the state can tackle negative stereotypes despite women retaining autonomy. Je n'ai pas compris. Yeah, retaining, sorry, it's breaking up for some reason. Retaining autonomy. Autonomy? Oh, oh yes, yes, leur autonomie. Uh, oui, est-ce qu'on yeah. peut uh, donc uh, attaquer sur uh, les, statistiques, les statistiques négatives? To ah, abort, que, en fait, to yes. abort a severely disabled baby is conflicting. Donc, en fait, c'est vraiment en, en conflit Uh, um, qu'un um, qu enfant avec des, 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 des handicaps soit avorté. Oui, mais je n'ai pas compris la question. Quelle est sa question Je n'en... S'il vous plaît, yes, la question. Mais je ne comprends pas la question. Quelle est votre question, s'il vous plaît Je suis désolée. Maybe because it's difficult in translation, sure. Um, I can't send this. Do you, want, do you want to put, yeah. Yeah. Put, maybe maybe put that one in via email, Jonathan, maybe. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Donc, because uh, uh, we, we have... Vous l'envoyez par email. Parce qu'on a un problème de son. On a un problème. An issue with sound. Il est assuré. issue. Okay, sure. Yeah, and you're breaking I will, up. You're breaking I will have to submit via email. Uh, that's that line. Okay, working. thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. And we'll compile that and we'll try. Uh, 
we will try a final question from Jerry Carroll to see if that if that works, and if not, then we'll ask Jerry to put his question in the email also. But I will try to go to Jerry and see if we can get a question from Jerry. Uh, bonjour, merci encore. Um, could you speak to the need for women uh, with disabilities um, to get uh, access to abortion and to have barriers? Uh, removed so they can't can get access to abortion, please. Okay, can, can we repeat the question, please? No problem. Um, could Louisa speak and address the point about women with disabilities needing access Alors, to abortion okay. services, please? Okay. Est-ce que, Louisa, est-ce que vous parlez aussi uh, des, des femmes avec un handicap? Pour avoir accès à l'avortement aussi Oui, bien sûr, mais on demande leur consentement éclairé. On les informe avant. Yes, so, yes, but we are asking for their consent, knowing that they've been informed prior to. Je peux lui lire Le, la déclaration conjointe CEDO et, et Comité des droits des personnes handicapées. Regardez ce qu'il so dit. I, so I can read to you, uh, the declaration la déclaration conjointe CEDO, CEDO l'accès à un avortement so sur, sur, sur et légal. Sur et légal. Ainsi, uh, sure sure, yes, ainsi uh, qu'au service, qu service et information connexe est un aspect S, ainsi qu'au service. Yes, ainsi qu'au service et information yeah. connexe. And info, uh, informative connexe, yeah. Est un aspect essentiel de la santé génésique des femmes, y compris des so, femmes handicapées. So it's an essential aspect um, of the health of women, also women with disabilities. Avant toute chose, les femmes handicapées doivent avoir accès à l'information. So prior to anything, a woman with disabilities should have access um, to, to information. Les services conseils and uh, uh, advice services et doivent donner leur consentement éclairé libre et éclairé and and, and, she, and must be um, must, must give consent their consent, consent éclairé and with, with full mind voilà merci je vous en prie thank you okay Okay, okay, uh, merci and, and thank you very, very much for your appearance here today, Louisa and Cindy. Thank merci. you for, for your interpretation. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so, very much. Merci, Louisa, pour votre uh, parution aujourd'hui. Uh, so, oui? the committee. The, the committee the committee will con will continue its uh, its deliberations on this, and we thank you for agreeing to take further questions from members. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, le, le comité uh, va continuer sa délibération. Oui. Et uh, merci uh, d'avoir pris les questions de, de nos membres. Oui, merci.
Merci. So, so um, merci pour votre contribution aujourd'hui. Prenez son de vous et au revoir. Monsieur le Président, okay. Monsieur le Président, thank you, thank you so much for your kind words. Huh? I'd stay at your disposal if you have any further question. Please don't hesitate. Thank you so much and have a good journey. Bye-bye. Très bien, merci et au, euh, au revoir. Au revoir. OK, thank you. Thank you so much. So, ma'am... Thank you. OK, thank you. OK, members, I, I, think, I think actually members um, across the range of questions, if members, if members wish we, we could submit those questions just to get clearer answers, that was clearly a difficult session, both in light of the interpretation and language difficulties and also uh, factoring in the remote, the remote participation, which I think added to the difficulties. So if members are content, please, please submit your questions and we will forward those to CEDAW and we get an answer back and compile, compile those questions in, uh, with, with a little more clarity. So members, I'm going to take a couple of very brief items and then I'm going to move in immediately at 10 o'clock to the meeting with the, with the minister with your agreement because I'm conscious that we only have a one-hour session there given the executive meeting taking place and the thefts of both, of both uh, Chief Medical Officer and Minister at that. So um, there have been no apologies received um, and I think we have full attendance, Clerk, or do we have any other apologies from members? Yeah, okay, we're full attendance. Uh, in terms of chairperson's business, I would like to uh, welcome back Pam Cameron as deputy chair back to the committee. And I think we all recognize um, Pam's contribution. I also want to thank Gordon Lyons for the contributions that he made during his brief time in that particular role. Uh, I would also like to inform members that it is normal practice for committees to delegate authority to the chairperson and deputy chairperson during periods of recess to submit views on the releasing or withholding of information in any non-routine or contentious FOA requests received. In the previous mandate, the committee agreed to this delegation of authority and that the committee would be advised at the first available meeting following the recess period of any such requests and the views expressed by the chairperson and deputy and or deputy chairperson, as well as the response issued by the FOA unit. Would members be content that we continue with this practice uh, over the summer recess? Yeah, members are content. Also, members, at this point, I would like to uh, acknowledge the work of the clerk and the entire committee team during what has been a very difficult uh, session. They have, as ever, provided the committee with, with very professional support, um, have functioned in, in circumstances where it's been quite difficult to put sessions in place. Again, uh, the difficulty added to by the remote nature and the difficulties created by COVID-19. So I just want to thank the entire staff, every, each and every one of them, for the work and contribution that they make to our work. Thank you. So uh, I'll refer then to the draft minutes there. I refer members to the draft minutes of the meeting of the 1st of July at tab 4.1. Are members content with the minutes? Yeah, members content. There is one matter or, or matters arising. There's a, a one item in item 5.1 in the pack. There's a further letter from the minister regarding the committee's consideration of the bonfire in Mutinards at last week's meeting. There is then a further response from the minister at tab 5.2 of the table papers outlining that the fire station in question will not be closed. So any other comments, members? No, thank you. Okay, members. Um, 
So we are now in a, in a position where I need to check with the clerk if we are able to start a minute or two early or if we need to suspend or pause for a few minutes in the of the 10 o'clock start time. Clerk, can you advise, please? Certainly, Chair, but we don't have the minister online at the minute. Um, so it will be a couple of minutes. I'm not sure if you want to go down and do your correspondence at the minute. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We will do that because, yeah. So with members with members' agreement, I'll go, I'll pick up on items of correspondence. Are members content with that? Yeah, thank you. So members, in the main pack, there are two items of correspondence uh, that, are, that are being flagged up today. Item 12.1 is a departmental response to the committee's correspondence on the terms of reference for the urology public inquiry. The department is asking for comments on matters which members feel should be considered within the terms of reference to be sent to the department by the 16th of July. So do members have any comments in relation to that item? Go sure. ahead, Jonathan. Yes, Chair. As you yeah. know, this is something that I've been following and I, I do welcome the opportunity to speak on it. I suppose probably uh, a bit of a dismay at the original response back from the department because originally when the minister had come to the committee, he did say about the, the committee having a, an input in those. So I'm actually glad that we are getting a chance now and I hope they are taking on board. So four main broad issues for me and I know that the committee... Some may not have been following this particular issue because of its locality to me. It's something that's quite personal. Uh, but firstly, adequacy and safety of the urology service provided by the Southern Trust. The media reported on the 10th of June 2021 the shocking revelation that patients are waiting up to 365 weeks, seven years for admission for urology services in the Southern Trust. This is the longest waiting list of any kind in Northern Ireland and the longest urology waiting list in the United Kingdom. So as a result, patients uh, and hundreds of them are at risk uh, of delayed diagnosis and treatment of serious conditions, including cancers. So this is a situation that has been developing over many years and has been uh, raised as a concern by the consultants in the urology uh, at the Trust for some time. I know Mr. O'Brien formally raised them as a matter of public interest, concern and grievances submitted in 2018 uh, and in an ad ad addendum in the grievance in July 2020. So the inquiry should review the Trust's response to these public interest concerns formally submitted over recent years. Uh, I also uh, believe there is serious issues in relation to triage uh, and extracts from leaked reports in the Irish News showed that patients had to wait up to three and a half years for a first urology appoint, uh, outpatient appointment in the Southern Trust following referral. Um, so Mr O'Brien had raised concerns regarding the safe uh, conduct of, of triage since 2014 and the, the inquiry in my opinion should review the trust's response to concerns raised uh, and to the recommendation of the uh, confidential report uh, which was referred to by the Irish News. Uh, I can give the committee some more detail in relation to these points for consideration by the committee but I also think the leaks to the media are going to have to be investigated by means of the inquiry. Uh, the inquiry should investigate the breaches of confidentiality and, of port importantly, of data protection. And, and finally, uh, the grievance in general that Mr O'Brien had submitted. So the inquiry should review all of the concerns contained in the formal grievance of November 2018 and all of the additional concerns contained in the addendum in the grievance of July 2020. I believe that inquiry should invest the, the progressive victimisation 
of Mr. O'Brien by the trust since the submission of the above grievances. These are a number of points. I realize there may be some detail on that. I'm happy to share that note with the committee clerk to share among members. But I believe that any inquiry and terms of reference must reflect the full picture of what has went on uh, in within the and trust to ensure that uh, truth, patience and clinicians is, is achieved by means of this public inquiry. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. And um, could members submit then um, any further? And, and I appreciate that you will submit those in, in written format, Jonathan, for the committee's consideration. Could members submit anything that they have in relation to that? And we can uh, agree that via email and then forward to department. Are members content with that? Okay, thank you, members. So I see, I see where the minister and the chief medical officer are now online. I'll go back to the second item of correspondence then, and I propose that we we'll go back to the ministerial briefing then in light of time constraints. So, clerk, can you please uh, ask ask for broadcasting to bring the minister and the chief medical officer into the spotlight? Thank you. That's them in now, chair. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to welcome then this morning, Minister for Health, Robin Swan. Good morning, Minister. Morning, Chair. You can hear me. You can hear me okay. And um, Dr. Michael McBride, uh, Sir Dr. Michael McBride, actually, more more correctly now, and um, welcome this morning, Dr. McBride. Can you hear me okay? Uh, good morning, uh, Chair. Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And um, could I go back to yourself, Minister, and do you want to make some opening remarks? I am very conscious that we're, we're on a very tight time frame today. We had hoped to have some discussion around the Memorandum of Understanding, but I think, and I'm sure you'd agree, Chief Medical Officer, that we don't want to brush over that. There's important work there, so I think we may need to come back to that. And there are there are clearly um, significant issues around other, other health issues at present that I think members will want to touch upon. So in light of the truncated uh, time that we have this morning as a result of the executive meeting, I propose that we'll, we'll focus on those things first. If, if some time allows the end, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But I, I think we may have to come back to that memorandum of understanding issue. So, uh, Minister, do you want to make some opening remarks there? I chair well and look and thank you for the welcome and I'll, I'll keep these short this morning just in regards to allow for more for more questions and engagements. But um, since the last time I attended the the health committee on the thirteenth of May, we have been making progress um, in a number of areas. Um, members will be aware, um, maybe not of the exact details, but at close of play last night, uh, we had delivered two million eighty eight thousand two hundred and fifty four doses of vaccine. Uh, first dose. Sorry, of sorry uh, just just uh, we're not seeing you at present. We are hearing you loud and clear, but just to just to let you know that we're not seeing you. I'm not sure if there's anything readily that you can do in relation to that. If you can't, it's all right. We can work away on the audio, but just to let you know that we're not seeing you on the camera at the present time. Okay, my camera's on at this this side chair, as far as I'm aware. But I think as long as as long as we as long as you can hear me, rather than yeah. rather than having yeah. to. To, to stop the briefing. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise, yep. who knows, but anyway. Uh, sorry, I was saying that, Chair, look, uh, first dose vaccine stand now at 81.2% uh, of the adult population, second dose is 62.8% of the adult population. And I think those figures are a credit to our citizens who have come forward and helped uh, in the fight against COVID by getting their vaccine. 
but also by uh, those who are involved in the vaccination program and delivering it, a program that has really only been running just over seven months. But that said, Chair, with the emergence of the Delta variant, as many eligible people as possible need to get both jobs done to protect themselves and others and to help get us back to normality. Uh, our scientific modelling tells us high vaccine uptake will have a significant impact on future waves of the virus, and it is in everyone's interest that we achieve the, the highest vaccine uptake possible. And now is the time to come forward uh, and to achieve maximum uptake. Uh, as members are aware, we're rolling out a series of mobile vaccination clinics in population centres and pop-up vaccination clinics in areas of low uptake to, to make getting the job as accessible as possible. We've run mobile clinics in Belfast City Hall, Castle Wellen, Newry, Donner Park, uh, and Newcastle, as well as walk-in clinics running at vaccination centres across Northern Ireland. Further mobile clinics are taking place on, or planned in the coming days. Uh, they'll be in Bangor, the Millennium Forum in Londonderry, Kitty, Coal Island, uh, the Abbey Centre in Newton Abbey, uh, and a clinic is now also running at the Whitla Hall at Queen's University. Anyone over 18 can attend a vaccine centre. There are more vaccination locations than ever, and this is more availability than at any point in the programme, so now is the time to come forward. We have welcomed the, the interim guidance that JTVI have now issued on the Autumn Booster Programme, which will enable us uh, to focus on, or actually focus our planning now. But as we continue the fight against COVID, we can once again begin to, to think of our normal activities. My department has been working on a system of certification for those who have had both doses, uh, both a permanent solution uh, and the interim solution. Um, just on, on closing my opening comments, Chair, can I take this opportunity to thank you and the committee for your support in progressing our two current pieces uh, of new legislation that have come forward. Uh, our organ and petition donation soft about got its first reading on Monday. Uh, the Children's and Adoption Bill, although the Speaker hasn't uh, actually completed uh, his full legislative ass assessment of the bill, uh, and working with his office, I understand, is to write to the committee uh, on this issue in regards to possible next stages and actually progressing that as soon as possible. So, Chair, I'm happy along with Sir Michael McBride to, to take questions at this point. Okay, thank you. And indeed, I do, I do acknowledge and, and welcome the fact that those two important bills have come. And uh, just to, to assure everyone that the committee has already expressed its determination that we will do everything necessary in order to um, address these bills and provide the scrutiny that, that the bills require. They're both very important pieces of legislation, and we are already making arrangements um, to ensure, as far as possible, that we can we can uh, play our part in all of that. So thanks for that. Um, so Minister, first one then for me, um, yourself and and your senior senior team, including Dr. McBride and uh, Professor Ian Young, have been um, in, discussing in the media some of the current modelling around um, the trajectory that we're on at the present time, um, indicating I think a. Well, can, can you outline what the modelling is indicating for us at the present time? Um, certainly, Chair, in, in regards to, and I suppose we have to be clear, that, that modelling isn't a, a prediction. It's where uh, where we're taking that as what we see currently. Um, the the modelling that we have shown has been made, has made available it's on the department's website. What we are showing is an increase in our positive cases. But as of yet, we are seeing 
uh, sorry, as as the last couple of days, we are seeing an increase in actually hospital admissions as well. We're now over 40 um, inpatients, so that does have an effect. We're not seeing the same translation rates from positive cases um, through um, to hospitalisation. And indeed, ICU, we have five people in ICU at the minute as well. So our modelling on, on current trajectory with the current re restrictions that we have in place uh, do show an increase of COVID-positive cases uh, towards the end of this month. And that, as we know, takes two to three weeks to actually translate through to, to hospital admissions. And then actually, um, and hopefully we are seeing um, I think the phrase that has been used elsewhere, Chair, is that they've seen a break between the length of COVID positive, positive, positive cases, hospitalizations and deaths. I don't think we would go as far as that in saying that there is now a reduction uh, in what we're seeing in those translations as well, but it's still there. And while I'm, why I made the, the plea in regards to vaccines, what we are seeing now is a very steady increase in the number of positive cases um, especially among young people, and that's where our, our our concern is at present. Michael, maybe do you want to pick up on any idea, anything else? Just briefly, Michael, please. Yeah, thank you, um, uh, Minister, Chair, members. Uh, I think, Minister, you've comprehensively covered it. I mean, I think that if uh, members uh, examine the modelling uh, which has been published, there are three scenarios. Uh, the pessimistic scenario, uh, the uh, central uh, scenario, and the optimistic scenario. At this present moment in time, uh, we are tracking the central uh, scenario. As Minister has said, uh, the modelling are not predictions. Uh, we will not be able to ascertain which of those trajectories that we're on uh, separate between the central and pessimistic, the worst sort of case scenario, until mid-July. And it will be the end of July before we're able to determine which trajectory we're on, uh, distinguishing between the central and the optimistic uh, scenario. Uh, clearly, um, the behaviours, what we do, how we interact, the number of contacts that they have, uh, whether we follow the public health advice or not, uh, and how many of us get vaccinated will make a big, big difference in terms of which of those paths uh, we follow. Uh, certainly in the worst case scenario, the pessimistic scenario, we could see upwards of 3,000 to 8,000 cases each and every day. Uh, and that could translate into up to 400 uh, people in hospital at any one time. And that on top of the existing pressures that we're seeing on the health service at this present moment. So that's why it's really important that we continue to follow the advice. And that's why it's really important, as the minister said, uh, that we now all take the, the opportunity to get the vaccine. And given that 400 figure there that you that you mentioned, uh, and, and there are clearly massive concerns around the deaths that may flow and also the long COVID, but given the 400 figure, is there now a, a fresh surge plan being developed to deal with those 400, given that the hospitals are already, as of yesterday, at 101%? So in a system with 3,100 plus beds, we're now looking at 400 additional, potentially, admissions. How is that going to be managed and how are services going to be maintained in terms of the urgent red flag and other life-threatening procedures? Um, Mr. Thank, sorry, Michael, if you want to go ahead, yeah. 
No, no, I was going to ask you, do you want to answer that? Do you want me to that? <laughs> no, uh, no, our, our surge planning uh, continues again, Chair, but um, and I think even reflecting back to the elective care strategy as well, it's how we also plan for sur the surges that we're seeing through positive cases, but also keep those green pathways uh, that we've started to establish and build on as well so that we can keep more of our day-to-day our -day operations going than we have in the past. Uh, what this modelling shows us, although it's shown us at, at I suppose, pessimistic scenario, having 400 uh, inpatients in total at, at, at their worst case scenario, which was akin to, to our, our last wave. You know, it's how we actually utilise the rest of, of of our capacity to keep things going. So it's it's not about the health service returning to, to normal. It's about keeping that, that surge plan and that planning always in the background and always preparing for what could be the worst case scenario, because unfortunately, that's what we have to do. Okay, thank you. And you have mentioned there uh, the, 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 that there are some of the modelling is published. Can the committee see the detailed modelling? I presume there is, there is, or is everything published at this stage, or is there further modelling that can be provided to the committee so we can scrutinise decision making, decisions made, decisions not made? Uh, is there further information and modelling available on that, Minister? Uh, the, we we publish all, all our modelling now, chair. So that is that is up on the department's website. We can share it directly with with the committee as well. Uh, the discussions that take part uh, in the executive around to that, I, I wouldn't be be able to share w with the committee because those would be the executive conversations. But the modelling is online. We can get it when it is published weekly. We can get it sent directly to to yourselves via the committee clerk. Okay, final quick one from me then is in relation to and and I do welcome the elective the elective care the the mental health strategy the cancer recovery plans. There's been some significant announcements made in in recent weeks and welcome announcements. But can I ask, Minister, in relation to the funding of those and the resourcing of those in terms of workforce, um, what discussions have been had with uh, with British Treasury or with the executive in relation to clearly those plans cannot be implemented without uh, without resourcing. Uh, no, what, uh, what discussions are there on in relation to those? Well, no, uh, and that's that's the crucial point, Chair, and uh, no, and uh, thank you for 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 bringing on to that. You know, in regards to what we now do, in regards if we publish a strategy, we put the costing uh, plan against it or the funding plan that's needed, uh, and conversations and and detailed conversation with your party colleague, the the finance minister. Uh, there will be a, a further executive um, engagement piece uh, that he's planning. He's leading on over the summer. Um, I, I welcome the the indications coming from my executive colleagues in regards to, to funding health. Uh, but until we actually see, I suppose, the, the final figures, uh, we know what we can do then. Uh, there is executive consensus now about the need for recurrent funding for health. Um, that is something that we've we firmly believe for a long number of years we can't do anything on a year-to-year -year budget. We need that that surety. So the conversations that we've had, and, and again, um, you know, welcome comments from Connor in regards to how both finance and health are working together and, and the realisation of that. Um, the, the operation of this place, Chair, means any conversations with Treasury are held between the Department of Finance and Treasury. Uh, that's the way we... It's the way that the I suppose it's the way we work. You know, finance talks to finance, health talks to health, and in, in regards to that, so I wouldn't be privy to the, the full detail of that. But one thing I would like to say is, and I, and I would seek support in, if there are any further funding announcements made uh, across the water in regards to health-specific initiatives, 
that any bar Barnet consequential coming out of those are also ring fenced for health here in Northern Ireland as well. Because I think, as we've set out, you know, from the mental health strategy, from the cancer recovery plan, for an elective care plan, you know, we can show what we can do when we actually get that that financial support as well. Okay, I'm going to go to members now, and I will ask members, and I will be uh, have to be strict on time. We have approximately five minutes each per member. If there are additional questions or an, an answer doesn't get questioned within the time, um, if I could ask maybe Minister and, and Chief Medical Officer if we can address those directly to you get, uh, by email. But also, if members feel that, that the question has been misunderstood or is not being addressed, I'd ask members to indicate that through the chair so we can we can go back to it so we, we have precise and and uh, succinct questions and answers, please, to try to give everyone uh, the, the, a fair chance in today's meeting. So I have a number of indications here. At this point in time, I'm going to be going to Pam, Jonathan, Jerry, Cara, Paula, Orlea and Alan. So going first of all to our, our deputy chair back in position as of this morning, Miss Pam Cameron. Go ahead, Pam, please. Thanks, Chair. Um, and good morning, Minister, and to um, Sir Michael. Good good to see you this morning, although we, we can't see the minister as yet, but he'll maybe he maybe sort his camera out soon. Um I wanted to ask in around um uh, in terms of Chief Medical Officer, uh, Sir Michael, if you could give uh, the committee your assessment on how the predicted rise of COVID cases um, in the latest wave, how, how do you see that impacting on frontline services and to what degree will the, the vaccine programme offset this? And then on the back of that, maybe to, to Robin, could you maybe tell us uh, what plans you have to, to tackle the, the concerns or perhaps the lack of concern from some of our younger adults in terms of um, the vaccine and vaccine hesitancy and have you any plans to roll out um, more PR in different uh, formats to try and address that hesitancy and, and get those rates up to that target of, of 90% of all adults? Thank you. Okay, I just come in on that last point. Uh, can I just congratulate you? on your, your reappointment. Um, it's good to see you back in post, even though you can't see me. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's there. No, look, in regards to what we are seeing, um, in regards to that vaccine hesitancy in, in the lower age groups, um, we're now, as I indicated earlier on, we're, we're offering those pop-up clinics, the walk-in clinics, uh, just on, well, not anecdotally, but from our figures this morning, the, the first uh, walk-ins, um, opportunity at Queen's University yesterday so in the region of 180 people uh, walking in for their first vaccine we engaged or sorry the, the people on site engaged just to see why uh, they'd walked in or why they hadn't booked and what we were getting is well sure this is hand there so it is about our younger age group not you know if, if they have to go on if they have to book uh, maybe not as many are as engaged as we'd like them to be but if it's on their doorstep if they can walk past and walk in they are doing that so we are doing more work uh, in regards to that there are a number of tv um, advertisements now going to run over july and august uh, supported by uk government as well so they're uk wide um this afternoon um sir michael and patricia donnelly and myself are meeting with our three main sporting codes uh, to get them to act as advocates as well, to encourage young people to come forward and actually take up the vaccines. So I will share, Chair, as well. I'll, I'll share the, the list when, when we come off this call. It's on NI Direct, but I'll, we'll get it shared with the committee exactly about the locations of all the, the upcoming walk-in clinics 
and, and pub and clinics that are proposed as well. And I'd appreciate it just if members can put that out on their social media or party messaging as well, or just shared through community groups because we are in this, the sort of the last the last legs of this. So, Sir Michael, do you want to pick up on that? Uh, thank you, Mister, and, and thank you, um, Pamela, for the for the for the question, a very important one, and one that's certainly exercising a lot of, of time and energy in terms of planning for that. Clearly, uh, any additional admissions over and above the current level of activity uh, will put significant pressures on the health service. It feels like the middle of winter at this present moment in time. Uh, if you're in discussion with our frontline staff, you will know that and hear that from them. Uh, and that's on the back of a very long, very difficult past 18, 18 months. So from uh, one level, staff are physically tired and exhausted. Um, and I think that's something that we almost uh, bear in mind. Also, at this present moment, uh, I, mean, I can only but apologise for the excessive waits um, that uh, people are waiting for beds uh, and their families are experiencing in our hospitals because of the pressures. There is no doubt that that's a combination of factors. It's a combination of the fact that we have not been able to. Uh, the flows have been slowed down because of the need to maintain physical distancing um, within our units and, and space between people. Uh, it's also as a consequence of the fact that people are now presenting with conditions that they may have presented with earlier uh, during the some of the restrictions. Uh, and also it's a manifestation of the excessive uh, waiting times and now people presenting with complications uh, as a result of the excessive waits that they've had to access uh, treatment and care. Uh, if you then imagine for potentially up to four to 600 additional COVID admissions on top of that um, by late summer into September time, uh, then you can imagine the sort of perfect storm uh, of additional pressures. Looking a little further ahead, then I think we will fa we face into a very difficult winter. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure members, none of you can remember the last time perhaps that you had a sniffle or a cold. None of us have been exposed to any respiratory viruses over the uh, past uh, period of time, apart from COVID. Uh, and we will then see probably a, quite a challenging seasonal flu season uh, a return of other respiratory viruses in children, such as RSV, and also respiratory viruses in adults. So I think we're facing into a very difficult uh, next uh, number of months, and then potentially a very challenging uh, winter period with tired, exhausted staff. And I think, as Minister said, we will continue to provide the elective care, the emergency care through the uh, plans that we put in place, the surge plans and implementation of the elements of the elective care uh, strategy but it is going to be a very, very challenging uh, period for frontline staff and indeed for the people that we serve. But we all can reduce those pressures by about half if we get to 90% of vaccine uptake. And that's why it's really, really important that we maximise this opportunity now. Thank you both. Okay, Pam. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, Paula's hand had been up and was down again. I had, I had missed that, but I'll go to Paula Bradshaw and then I'm going to Jonathan and Jerry. So go ahead, Paula, please. Oh, thank you, Chair, for bringing me in. Um, and thank you, gentlemen, for your presentations. I've got four very, very quick questions. One, when is the JCBI um, guidance going to be updated for 12 to 17-year-olds? Um, can you consider a pop-up vaccine centre in the Holy Land with bilingual signage? Um, when is the... Um, Pedi uh, sorry, surgical um, podiatry 
pilot um, plans, when are they going to be given to the orthopaedic foot and ankle service work stream? And finally, and most importantly, Minister, I met with families last night whose children um, have um, different types of scoliosis. Um, so I would ask you to comment on the waiting lists for the first appointment, review the surgery um, for um, the, the treatment. And could you comment on the fact that a lot of families now are having to um, go go fund me um, thirty five to forty thousand to send their children to Turkey because the waiting lists are so long? Thank you. Thanks, Paula. A very efficient use of time there in regards to that. Um, go just in the orders you had. JCVI guidance on twelve to seventeen year olds. They are assessing that at the moment. We're awaiting on on that readout. Uh, Early indications are uh, it's maybe going to be for the clinically extremely vulnerable uh, in that age group. They have the recent JCVI guidance just as in regards to boosters. Now they are saying what is probable. They haven't confirmed. Due to the pop-up in Holy Land, I'll pass that on to Patricia uh, to look for a location or the Belfast Trust. If there's a large population that we can capture, that's what we're we're, we're currently doing. Uh, in regards to uh, the waiting list, in regards to the spinal, it's one of the uh, pieces of work we're actually working with uh, consultants at the minute in regards to the, what's coming out of the elective care uh, framework as well. And while it may not be exactly a mega clinic, but a larger clinic for assessments, so we can actually work on those. But I'll get uh, further details sent through as the chair actually asked for. We can follow up in detail in writing. And the third one I missed. Oh, is it, it was the surgical pediatry pilot. You have it in the framework. It's just when is the when are the plans going to be given to those people who are working in the field, the, the work stream who've been looking at this? Okay, sorry, that that's the the pediatry. Uh, yeah, the pilot that's due in I think January March twenty twenty two. That conversation I believe is due to be started between my officials and, and those consultants. But again, I can get you the specific detail on dates and and engagements and and writing if that's useful. Thank you. Thank you. And going then to Jonathan Buckley. Go ahead, Jonathan, please. Thank you, Chair. Uh, good morning, Sir Michael, and good morning, Minister. I suppose not ideal that we only have a short time given the serious issues that are before us. But, Minister, as you've outlined since your last appearance at the committee, there has been some significant policy statements uh, which will require uh, scrutiny by this committee and indeed by the House. So, in relation to the elective care framework, um, I, I would be interested to know how that funding will be allocated or how we can obtain uh, the, the amounts needed and, and what are the headline projects identified. Uh, and, and in relation to waiting times in particular, um, how can we get to a situation where, whereby uh, we can deal with the inequalities in waiting times and access in certain parts of Northern Ireland and the main obstacles to delivery on those waiting times? And the other issue that I'd like to finish with, Minister, and you will know this has become an issue, obviously international travel is very much live with many of our citizens at present, and it still is a contentious issue surrounding COVID um, or vaccine cer certificates, etc. Um, I had a situation that I was dealt with, and I, I did correspond with your office, and I know your department did engage with, but it was in relation to those um, constituents of mine that had travelled via Dublin from Edinburgh that were detained, and albeit they recognised that they should have had a PCR test, but the fact being that they were permitted to fly when they arrived, there two issues are, uh, came became prominent. One being that um, there was medical issues 
uh, which were denied by the Irish government in relation to uh, the need for for uh, one of my constituents to get home for childcare and for medical reasons, and the other being that there was a clear uh, inequality whereby people on the same flight that were travelling the same direction that may have had an Irish passport were allowed to travel freely, and others, it would seem, that had a British passport were unable to go home to their destination. So I felt that this is an issue that needs to be raised, and perhaps you could maybe elaborate uh, on what engagement uh, your department has had uh, with the Irish government to step up and pursue an operable solution which avoids a heavy-handed approach towards residents of Northern Ireland who are returning home from the common, common travel area. I'm sorry I've tried to get that all in at once, but I know we are restricted for time. No, no, Johnny, uh, uh, thanks for that. Look, in regards to the elective care framework, you know, the 707 million that we laid out in regards to what it'll actually take us over the next few years to get us into a position where our service can actually cope with uh, the, the work that comes forward to it. We deliberately set that out in short, medium and longer term uh, targets and projects that we can actually go uh, and utilize to do that and that's where the funding stream is actually set out in regards to that as well you will be aware you know i got an extra 30 million there in the in the gin monitoring round which allows me to start some of that work but it doesn't allow me to do the long-term investment and i think it goes back to the the, the answer that i gave the chair in regards to funding it does need that long-term commitment uh, from the executive of a recurrent budget that actually allows us to not just invest um, in getting our, our waiting times and waiting lists down, but also invest in our staff and our facilities that once we get them down, we keep on top of them. In regards to you know, the disparity across um, across different trusts in Northern Ireland, one of the things that we did that, is, that has stood us in good stead during COVID is actually the development of a regional programme uh, operating group where they look at uh, all patients in regards to their seriousness uh, and their urgency of procedure, and then start to assign to available theatres rather than just solely in a trust. So it is about that regional approach now to waiting lists, and we're seeing that even you know through the elective care frame, elective care framework as well. That is one of the very strong themes that we're getting, not just uh, from our point of view, but also from surgeons, from clinicians, and also from patients as well. Patients are, are are willing to travel rather than wait. And that's the sort of health service that we need to develop over the next couple of years. In regards to, to the specific uh, issue you raised about, about the travel inequalities, look, you'll be well aware of, of the challenges that um, I've had, that the exec all party, all members of the executive have had in regards to uh, international certification, the sharing of passenger locator forms, but also travel within the common travel area. Uh, that has been raised uh, previously by the First and Deputy First Minister uh, with Prime Ministers, with Taoiseach uh, as well in regards to what can be done to do that. In regards to, to the specific case, you know, uh, my, my department was in contact with, with the Department of Health uh, in the Republic of Ireland and there was an appeal process put in uh, in regards to the medical condition, which uh, I believe saw the, the couple actually released on, on the Monday afternoon. But come back to the point why were they allowed to travel, the airline should have made it clear to them as well in regards to their responsibility, you know, the airline's responsibilities as actually to informing them. So we have ongoing conversations with our counterparts in the Republic of Ireland. They're, they're not easy, uh, would be the best description uh, of them at this current time. They improve uh, at points in time, 
but then when there's changes made either to international travel uh, from our side or from their side, there's always that level of, of inconsistency and challenge. Can I just say, just in closing on that point, Minister, I think it has been quite deplorable, the lack of engagement and cooperation from the Irish government in relation to, to the travel element. And I would, I, I do welcome your department's uh, your department's involvement in the particular case uh, that, that I was dealing with. But I would ask you, please, to take up with them the inequalities which seem to be apparent, whereby those with different passports on the same flight are given different uh, treatment in relation to COVID restrictions. Last time I checked, COVID doesn't discriminate between nationality or colour or names on a passport. So I think this is a point that needs to be raised forcefully with the Irish government to ensure that there's equality for citizens uh, that reside in Northern Ireland and hold a British passport. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. And going then to Jerry. Go ahead, Jerry, please. Thanks, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Minister CMO. Of similar to Paul, I've got a, quite a few questions, so I'll run through them as, as quickly as I can. Um, just in regards to the mental health strategy and, and the funding plan in particular, um, could the Minister uh, detail um, how the, um, the sort of level of need was, was assessed uh, through the uh, funding plan? Um, there's a concern that the postcode lottery uh, may still continue, and, and obviously there's been an increase um, in, in money. I think mostly around the the talk on uh, hub therapies, uh, but there's a concern that people who haven't got access or didn't get access to a GP counselling services at all or for months um, may not, with the increase even in, in funding uh, with the mental health strategy. So maybe if the minister could could um, uh, or CMO address uh, address that concern uh, with the strategy. Um, another two points, uh, Minister. Um, it was raised just yesterday with me. Um, there's a group of workers doing very important work in our city, um, doing translation work um, um, via the BSO, but they aren't employed by the BSO. Uh, they've uh, no contract at ours. They've, uh, as I understand it, uh, limited rights. Um, and uh, these are mostly quite a lot of workers who are refugees and uh, precarious, uh, previously precarious uh, immigration uh, status. So um, I just put that on your radar and I'm going to submit some assembly questions uh, to you, but I, I was asked to raise that with you uh, today. And then finally, um, the issue of uh, stem cell donor uh, research and awareness. And uh, there's obviously been a few questions submitted. There's been uh, Emer's Wish campaign and others highlighting this. Uh, so we could maybe speak to that and say uh, what is being done to ensure that uh, palliative or, or cancer uh, services and treatment, uh, there, that there is a work uh, being done to consider making it um, specific and, uh, you know, um, relatable to people who are young, uh, young people and young adults because there's a gap in, in the services, uh, as I understand it, uh, at the minute. So thanks. Um, thanks, Jerry. Um, I, again, just uh, working through those mental health strategy um, in regards to the, the inequality is something that, that the mental health strategy actually recognises, and that's why we're going. You know, point thirty-one in the mental health strategy was about the regional men mental health service and how we actually establish uh, that equality of service across Northern Ireland. Again, irrespective of trusts, 
And again, one of the things that we have done with it in the funding plan as well, there was those four or five key enablers uh, about actually sets the foundation for, for the next stage of of the mental health strategy. And we have, in turn, we already have uh, indicated funding from those within my own departmental budget and that regional mental health service and indeed the whole workforce review, uh, which was the impl implication from the outcome, is actually two of those key enablers. So that's the piece of work are the two pieces of work that we need to be able to do uh, to set really the foundation for the rest for the rest of, of the strategy as well. In regards to the token hubs and the token therapies, uh, the £10 million uh, mental health uh, fund that we recently launched that's open to the voluntary community sector, uh, token therapies uh, and hubs is actually one of the, the many criteria uh, that are actually covered under that that funding pot as well. So if you have organisations that need uh, or are interested in applying to that, if you go through the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, uh, they're actually setting it up. I think there was an online briefing session this maybe this afternoon or even this morning, but if not, if you want to get in contact with them. The translators and BSO, again, something I'm not aware of, but thanks for raising it. That's something we can we can follow up on. In regards to the, the palliative care, uh, you know, especially for children and young people. I met yesterday with our, our hospice providers uh, in regards to that and the support that can be given uh, and the, the specific supports that are given. And I know I recently visited the, the children's hospice as well uh, in regards to how that can be um, enhanced and adop adopted. Uh, there, is a, there is a call as well that... Um, Actually, palliative care should be, and the wider discussion, there was a debate on it, I think you're part of, in regards to how we actually put that into the programme for government and how death, dying and bereavement actually becomes the, 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 wider, the wider conversation as well in society. So the, the cancer recovery plan, which, uh, which is, has, has been produced and is, is about to be, you know, about to be published for, for talking, you know, for, I suppose, for greater discussion, covers a number of ind indicators that do need to be supported, how we support people, uh, how we look at palliative care as well, as well as, you know, the, the patient flow on support as well. So it covers all, all the supports, uh, that should be, uh, actually in place as well. So as well. So, uh, obviously also aware of Emer's wish, uh, and the engagement that it's had as well. And I would encourage, you know, them along with the other, the other organizations as well to, to engage with the cancer recovery plan. My department officials and again, uh, come back to the, the cancer recovery funding pot that is available to you as well. There's a 10 million pound there over three years that organizations, uh, can apply to. Okay, thank thank you, Jerry. And going then to Chiara Hunter. Go ahead, Chiara Lidahan. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to both uh, the Minister and Michael for being here this morning. Uh, I also have a number of questions, so I will try and be as quick and brief as possible. Uh, Minister, we've seen the recent news uh, that Rumwood Nursing Home's profits have risen to £20 million, uh, and yet we're aware that they have uh, failed to meet basic standards in several of its homes. Um, there was evidently several failings throughout COVID, and does the minister think it's unusual um, that Runwood's profits ha are now twenty million? And also, are there currently any care homes within Northern Ireland that are paying back for either PPE or other services provided by the Department of Health? Um, so those are my questions on care homes. And then lastly, um, just a question regarding uh, an update of the use of um, 
COVID passports and outside of travel uh, can you clarify if or where they will be used and required uh, and do you have potentially any uh, equality concerns about how they're implemented? Thank you. Um, thanks Cara. In regards to, to Ronwood Homes, um, they actually changed their, their structure here in Northern Ireland uh, recently so I don't think they, they actually function as that group anymore. I'm aware of uh, recent media reports which highlighted their their UK profit uh, and it was across their entire operation in the United Kingdom, not something that I, I it's not something that I, I look deeply into uh, following that report. Uh, but in regards to the ongoing work of RQIA, um, I had a meeting yesterday evening with the chair of RQIA just in regards to their work programme and what they're looking at. But that work continues uh, across our care home sector as well, but how they, they provide that support as well. Uh, there is no requirement for any of the care homes to pay back uh, in regards to supply of either PPE or additional staff supports uh, that we put in during the worst uh, of the the COVID outbreaks, uh, even, no matter what we have come through, because it was the right thing to do at that time. So it was actually monies that were supplied to, to provide a service and protection for the people actually in those care homes, rather than than the businesses or the organisations themselves. Uh, your last point in regards to to COVID certification. It's a wider conversation that uh, the executive uh, has indicated that it's going to have about the utilisation of them. I, I wouldn't see a great appetite currently uh, for their utilisation um, of them in Northern Ireland outside international travel. Uh, but those conversations, I suppose, are, are yet to be had at, at any great detail as well. But their, their main their main function will be a requirement for international travel because that's going to be outside our scope and our remit. Uh, and that's what, I suppose, caused us the additional difficulties when those, uh, a small number of green countries unilaterally announced that they want a COVID certification to allow, allow travellers to actually enter. That's great. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Kira. And uh, going then to Orlea. Orlea Flynn, Lana Ray, Lish and Kisht. Orlea, Lincoln. Yep, Gormail, good um, column and thanks to the Minister and Dr McBride. Um, so three um, questions. My first one, Minister, is around the um, the mesh implant scandal. And I know I've been trying to follow up with your, your officials over the past number of weeks. Well, actually, since May, um, around the, the publication of the MESH report, which was commissioned by the department. So I'm just wondering if you have a date um, when you expect that that report will be published and if you have a date when you expect to make an announcement on the first Do No Harm recommendations. I know we've covered some of this in the chamber, but just if you have any updates for me today, that would be great. Secondly, um, and more generally around the mental health issue, um, while I appreciate, Minister, that with the, the sort of longer term um, issues around funding the strategies, um, I, I understand that. Um, but I would like you to commit again today um, in, in today's health committee to try your best to, to in increase the percentage of your own um, budget which is spent on on mental health. And I know that you've given that commitment previously. And um, because I'm just thinking in terms of in the short term, there's still, um, you know, a lot of progress and improvements that could be made um, in terms of mental health services, even without the 1.2 billion over the next 10 years for the, the mental health strategy. And then just finally, a quick question on um, the on abortion. 
services. So on the 16th of June, you had responded to the, the committee. We had wrote off to you around the protests outside the um, some of the abortion clinics. And in that letter, you had referenced that your department was resuming work to develop a service specification for the commissioning of abortion services. And I was just wondering if um, you could elaborate a wee bit more on that today, if you can. Thanks a million. Thank you. Um, thanks, sir, Leah. Uh, in regards to, to the MESH update, and it was something you, you raised on Monday, I, I don't have a date as of yet. It's something that our our, our department officials are continuing to work through the, the, the M. Cumberledge recommendations uh, and to do no harm. I suppose the, the, the number of um, specific ones that we have here in, to, to Northern Ireland, you know, in regards to the establishment even of a patient safety commissioner, um, still aware of the position of other UK administrations in regards to that, uh, but officials are continuing to consider uh, that recommendation to the local contacts and whether we have to do that that locally as well. Um, and, and I think when you do look at the recommendations, not all of them, as I said on Monday, are within my power uh, to take forward, uh, and they actually do reside still with the Department of Health uh, and Social Care in London. So we're continuing to do to do that piece of engagement. Maybe, again, rather than just writing back uh, and forth, if we maybe set up a meeting with my officials and yourself in regards specifically to that, uh, if we can get that set up, maybe it'd be useful rather than rather than a series of questions come back and forth early and just to, to get an update. I know we did have to pause some of the work uh, due to COVID in regards to, to where officials were actually assigned at that point. In, in regards to, to the mental health uh, funding, I, you know, I, I don't think you need to, to ask me to give my commitment to try my best. It's there. This is a piece of work that that I, I think from from we came in at the start and I remember I think it was actually one of the first presentations that I gave to the health committee in regards to where we were with COVID. I gave you the commitment at that stage and have maintained it that mental health and the mental health strategy uh, will be a key piece of work for, for my department and we've done that. The work that we can do in regards to, to I suppose, the, the reallocation is not about uh, the challenge about reallocation of funding, but how we use what we have better. And that looks at how we you know we look across those services that we are doing, how we look at them at the regional approach. And as I said to Jar Jerry, sorry, you know, the four key enablers that we have there that can actually start the work going, the workforce review, the regional approach as well, about how we start putting those things into place. But it's also uh, the commitment that's actually there in, in the strategy as well is about the funding commitment to CAMS as a service. Uh, as well. So in, in regards to, to your last point, and it was started off you know, about the exclusion zones uh, around he healthcare facilities, again, uh, where the, those protests are actually taking place, it's, uh, if it's outside, um, if it's off the grounds of a healthcare facility, uh, it's a cross-cutting issue, and we've happily you know, engaged and worked with both uh, the Justice Minister and Executive colleagues uh, to get those matters resolved as soon as possible. Because I'm concerned about the impact on healthcare staff who work at those facilities and they must be allowed to carry out their care and duties uh, without obstruction or anxiety, either of those um, who are entering the, the facility as well to receive treatment. In regards to the work that has been done with, with my, 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 in my department, that work was uh, initially commenced uh, prior to the restoration of these institutions. 
uh, back in January 2020. It was paused due to COVID and that work now continues uh, in regards to commission, uh, what a commission service uh, may look like. Uh, it's not committal that there will be one, but it scopes out what what it could look like, and, and that's in particular in regard to current Westminster legislation as well. That's great, Minister. Thanks very much. Thank you, Orlea. And going across then to Alan Chambers. Alan Gore, go ahead, please. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Uh, I think it's opportunity to uh, congratulate uh, Dr. McBride on his recent knighthood. Um, first question, Minister, is uh, it, it, it's been a huge success, obviously, in our vaccinating programme. Is there any danger that uh, the success of that programme could actually be leading to people uh, dropping their guard? Uh, in relation to the basic precautions that we've been putting forward, wearing masks, social distancing, hand hygiene, uh, and can you confirm that it is still very, very important that people adhere to these basic precautions? And also, if we do uh, continue to, to adopt those precautions, could it have uh, an impact on helping to reduce maybe the spread of the seasonal uh, flu outbreak? Uh, a lot of people also, because uh, we seem to be getting on top of COVID, um, can you confirm, is it it's still having an impact uh, on your ability to deliver uh, services within the, the, the NHS? And, you know, we, we see the, the pressure on a &E and ambulances and stuff. So is COVID still having that uh, impact? Uh, and the, the third question I have really is, is, it's an issue that an awful lot of people are grappling with at the moment. If I was to ask you, Minister, should I plan a foreign holiday for this summer? What advice would you give me? Thanks, Alan. Um, look, ju just in regards to your first point, in, in regards to vaccines, are people getting vaccinated and thinking they're they're immune? I think there is a small degree of that, but I would say to people, uh, vaccine doesn't provide that complete invincibility. It provides a level of uh, immunity. So, the biggest challenge we had, the biggest challenge we had this time last year, same is same as we are interested now, and is that is complacency. Uh, and that's where we have to ask people, you know, to get their vaccines, not just their first vaccine, but their second vaccine. And the other point you make, and something that this committee has continued to make as well, is about how those basic principles that we established, good hand hygiene, social distancing, face coverings, all those good basic principles continue to work, not just in the fight uh, against COVID, but also, as Sir Michael uh, indicated earlier on, in regards to your fight against the flu season that we'd have seen in the past, the biggest challenge we have, and maybe Michael can touch on it, you know, is the, the increase of RSI in children uh, that we're now seeing in children actually coming forward. So it's not about just, you know, we're doing all those things to look after the elderly and the vulnerable. It's also to support our, our, our children as well. In regards to, to the pressures, the more people we have entering hospital or needing to enter uh, hospital due to COVID is the less beds or the fewer beds that we have um, for other things uh, that we want to do, you know, all the, the routine procedures uh, that we step back. But that's why we're putting in, you know, all those uh, green pathways. That's why we're looking at the regional models, the likes of the Lagan Valley for a day procedures unit. Um, but the more inpatients we get, the fewer beds, but also the fewer staff we have as well to support support our other needs and our other other locations as well. 
In regards to to foreign travel, we now are part of, of you know the UK recommendation that's done uh, when they give out recommendations for uh, countries that are deemed less risky and that works through your green number and red list. Uh, I would suggest that people look to 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 Northern Ireland and and somewhere closer to home for their holidays uh, this year. That's they're not without risk either. Uh, but the travel industry has put in safeguards, has put in measures. Uh, the government has put in safeguards and measures as well as regards to traffic light in certain countries and, and their risk uh, evaluation. And if anybody does see the need uh, to travel abroad, I would ask them not just to follow the guidance uh, that comes out from the Northern Ireland Executive and UK government, but also look to the advice and guidance of the country that they're actually going to as well, because it maybe and probably is different from from here so you need to be aware um, of the country requirements that you're actually going to thank you minister thank you alan um august or jerry usanach yaranach carol nikhilan carol gore lesh lidakesh lidahal so thank you um minister and cmo for your appearance this morning i'm aware the clock's ticking so like other members i'm just going to ask a series of questions um, and like previous committees, if we don't get them responded today, she will follow up in writing. Um, first of all, um, the, in relation to our QIA and the um, problems that were there, particularly in uh, North Belfast, a North Belfast uh, nursing home, um, and the RQIA resignations, you know, is there any, uh, is there going to be any public um report or as a report of why that happened going to be published that's one thing the second issue i have is i appreciate that even our health and social care already on the media and they're talking and the church mentioned 101 capacity uh, i do think that some of that's around staff so what we need to come back to workforce planning but in relation to the COVID recovery plans that we've seen from your department from each of the trusts um where where are the winter surge plans from the department? Because um, obviously the COVID recovery is going to be um, impacted uh, given the increased numbers in adaptive variants. So it's just to get a, a feedback on that. And Minister, this is not to uh, put you on a hook, but um, the question that Jerry asked about stem cell research um, and age-appropriate facilities, even within our health and social care, weren't answered. So even if we could get those in writing, that would be much appreciated. So thank you. Um, thanks, Carl. Um, no, number of points there. Just in regards to the RQIA, that David Nicholson commissioned report will be due to publish um, shortly. It's just gone through final checks. So I'll forward a copy of that. Um, to the or to the committee as well. Once that has been has been finalised and signed off, in regards to to the, the winter pressures, and again, uh, fully conscious of the way um, the pressures on our staff, um, and it's something we indicated. You know, as we were coming out of of the winter surge, um, staff were living on on commitment on dedication you know and there's only so far and so long we we could rely on that so we have a tired workforce who are seeing an increased um uh, demand and increased presentation um to to your health service uh, just for, for an indication our emergency departments uh as, as a readout yesterday 
are working actually 14% above winter numbers. And that's us in the first week of July. So we are seeing that that pressure, that I suppose latent demand in some cases, actually coming forward. Our, our June and July uh, plans are about to be published as well. Uh, and lead, or sorry, our July and August plans are due to be published as well. Our, our surge plans were not ready to publish um, yet. They're still being developed. They're still being worked on because we take that into consideration, I suppose, closer to the time. The planning's still there in regards to how we increase our emergency department uh, provision, or sorry, our ICU uh, capacity as well. And we look, uh, I suppose, to other places as well, especially with, with Delta, with vaccines, about actually what capacities we do need to step up to this time because it will be hopefully less than we've seen in, in previous surges as well. Uh, in regards to the specifics, uh, in regards to the ask for, for Emer's wish, um, I'll get back to, uh, I'll get back to both you and Jerry and the committee in writing to that. But there are a number of issues actually covered in the cancer recovery plan. Uh, that actually addresses some of the concerns uh, that has been raised. So, And Chair, sorry, thank you for that, Minister. Much appreciated. But you will know the capacity of our emergency departments has been severely challenged due to people getting access to their GP. And indeed in Belfast... You've written to us a number of questions in regards, Carla, as well, as regards to that. Meeting recently, you know, with our, our Royal College of GPs and BMA on this issue as well. Um, and they've put out public messaging just in regards to, I suppose, the increased numbers that they're actually seeing uh, coming forward to. I think it was in the region of 180,000 uh, referrals um, in a week. So nearly 10% of the Northern Ireland population uh, presenting to a GP um, over over a period of of that time as well. So again, our our GP colleagues have I think they've actually presented to the committee recently as well as to the regards to the pressures that they're seeing. But we go back again, and I don't mean to keep them back. You know, to go back to the elective care strategy and the reviews um, that need to be done there. You know, the establishment of MDTs uh, and the additional works that can be done as well to support our or GPs that lead on to the EDs. And I think it goes back to that wider point that we can't take any one piece of our health service as a standalone, because if you move in one, it's, you move in the other and it has a pressure somewhere else. So it's about how we actually look at that, that wider picture as well. Yeah, just check back. I, I dropped off momentarily on the Minister Council. Check back on the stem cell, or has the Minister dealt with that on the stem cell research and the facilities we have for people? I'll come back with detail and writing to that, Chair. Okay, okay well, listen, thank you, Minister, uh, thank you, um, Chief Medical Officer, as well. There, there was one other issue I just wanted to raise as a wee concern. Or Concern Minister, I did note the uh, a, a member, uh, an official from the outreach and outreach in relation to the vaccine. I'm conscious that we have somewhere in the region of somewhere below, but almost half a million people here who are still unvaccinated and they're unprotected in the current in the current service. But he had outlined that they had asylum seekers, fishermen, fishing fishermen from rural communities and those are all very, very significant and important. Each other cohort of people from East Timor, Poland, Lithuania, lots of other um, people who have come here from other 
what engagement is there with them and what how can how can we ensure that the vaccine is being provided and is being taken up by the, all those in our community? Um, thanks, Chair. Claire, you, you were, I, Chair, you, you were you were coming and going there. Um, apologies, uh, but but I think I picked up the thrust was yes, we have done a number of specific outreach vaccine clinics uh, to to the fishermen and a number of other uh, ethnic uh, groups as well. Uh, but what we are now targeting, especially with the walk-in clinics as well, where we actually put those up uh, in regards to access, but also what we're finding as well in regards to those specific groups is actually take vaccine to the workplace. So we're seeing in our red meat and white meat factories as well that the deployment of, of vaccine clinics actually on site where they're working picks up a, a greater increase as well. So there is a, a, piece, a number of pieces of engagement being undertook uh, by the public health agency in reaching those further hard to reach groups. Uh, Michael, maybe if you want to just of time very briefly we have a specific piece of work that i chair the vaccine uh, program oversight board we have a specific subset which looks at hard to reach communities where you use the skills and networks that the public health health improvement teams have to reach out into the communities including the uh, inter-ethnic fora chinese welfare association uh, outreach workers into the roma community etc and as minister said we've specifically targeted both in terms of messaging uh, translation leaflets um, as as Paul requested earlier, lots of work with the homeless um, and uh, asylum seekers and a range of uh, of ethnic groups uh, who also, you know, may be taking their messages from their uh, TV channels from their own country and indeed uh, may have difficulty accessing some of the material. So that has been translated into multiple languages. Um, and again, we're we're very much targeting those uh, those communities to facilitate access to the vaccine, as Minister suggested. Okay, thank you. And um, thank you both for your attendance here today and for addressing committee members' um, questions and committing to providing any additional information that has been unable to be provided in the session here. Um, I'm conscious that your time is short today. Hopefully we will get in, in the autumn, we will be able to get some more detailed um, sessions with both of yourselves. But for now, thank you very much for attending and good luck in the important work which you both continue to head up and to, and to do at this time and over a, a, a fraught summer period and what could be a very difficult autumn and winter period. So thank you both. Okay, Chair, um, and again, just, just in closing, uh, can I thank you and the committee uh, for their support during this last this last session, um, as well over the last um, the last number of months, which have neither been um, easy or I suppose at times, uh, well at times have been challenges as well. But I, I thank you for the the scrutiny and support and the challenge that you and the committee have provided uh, to yourselves over the last number of months. And I do welcome the, the joint work that we can now progress with. We'll probably not agree completely in regards to the organization bill or the children's adoption bill, but at least it allows us to start that uh, very important, those two very important pieces of work as well. So when it does come into the, the September session that we're on a better footing to actually to get a more detailed uh, engagement on those two pieces of work. So Chair, thank you very much for your support and your time. Okay. Thank you and uh, thank you, thank you both. Okay, members, I'm going to take a short break there. I see we do have some of our um, trust uh, chief executives on the line already. So just take a really short break there, maybe a five minute break and come back at 10 past 11 
and we'll resume the session with the trust officials then. Clerk, can you suspend um, or advise that? No problem, Chair. That's us. Um, blank screen for now.
Okay, Clark. Okay, Colin, that's us back live again. Okay, thank you, members, and thank you to our um, uh, panel members. So we're resuming our meeting now in public session, and item seven then is in relation to severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill. And today we are receiving a briefing from the Trust Chief Executives. I refer you, members, to the papers of tab seven, which include copies of the summary of evidence received from individuals and organisations on the bill, and to the responses to the committee's correspondence relating to protests outside healthcare premises. I can advise that the Chief Executives from four of the Health and Social Care Trusts are here today to brief the committee on the trust position on the bill and on other issues that have been raised during other evidence sessions on the bill, such as screening and what are referred to as safe zones. We did receive, a, the clerk did receive a letter from the Western Trust Chief Executive advising that he could not attend today's meeting as it coincides with the public trust board meeting this morning. That is a tab 7.10 of your table of papers. So um, I think we are experiencing some difficulty with one of the members, but I'll go through the other three trust members and then we'll come back to Jennifer. So we're first of all welcoming by phone, Dr. Kathy Jack, who is Chief Executive of the Belfast Trust. Are you able to hear me okay, Kathy? Yes, Chair, thank you very much. Thank you. We're also joined by Mr. Shane Devlin, who is Chief Executive of the Southern Trust. Shane, can you hear me okay? Uh, good morning, Chair, I can hear you fine. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Roisin Coulter, who is Chief Executive of the Southeastern Trust. Roisin, can you hear me okay? Yes, Chair, I can, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm just going to check then with the clerk, do we have Jennifer Welsh, who's Chief Executive of the Northern Trust? I'm sure that we've been having a bit of problem getting Jennifer online, so I'll keep an eye on and let you know when, when she comes online. Okay, thank you very much. And I want to thank each and every one of you, Tafalcha Rove, Kuchi and Kushta Slancha, or Mojin Shaw. Thank you, and you're both. You're all very welcome to this morning's health committee meeting, and thank you for coming along to provide us with uh, your evidence and experience in relation to this matter. Um, if I can, just for the purposes of coordinating the session, if I can ask, um, were a chief executive or an executive can substantively address a, qu a question from a member that that is the key. Then only if additional further information from one of the other chief executives is helpful, then please indicate that. So rather than having three answers to every question, if 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 that's not necessary, um, and I recognise there's there's differences across across all, it does help if members use headsets and if members can please remember to keep themselves members and panel keep yourself on mute when you're not uh, actually contributing to the meeting. So I'll go back now and just ask uh, ask the chief executive to brief us, and I'll just go back in the order in which I introduced people there. So I'll go back to yourself, Dr. Jack. Would you give us your opening remarks, please? So, Chair, just to be helpful, we have together uh, got an opening statement and Roisin Coulter, Chief Exec of SET, is going to lead on that opening statement for us. I hope that the committee is content with that. That is helpful, yes. Thank you. Okay, Roisin, go ahead. Thank you, Chair and members, for the opportunity to attend and speak with you all this morning. And uh, I would like, if I may, to begin with a statement on behalf of all of my colleagues, the Chief Executives of the five acute health and social care trusts in Northern Ireland, four of which, as you've mentioned, are joining us on the call today. So as members will appreciate, it is not the preserve of trust chief executives to comment upon a private member's bill. 
namely in this case, the Severe Fetal Abortion Amendment Bill. Informed opinion on the bill must come from those clinical healthcare professionals who are the experts in that particular field, and we know that the committee have already taken evidence in that regard. It is also not appropriate for us to comment upon policy in relation to early medical abortion. That responsibility clearly rests with the Department of Health and the Northern Ireland Executive. We can, however, talk about the current provision of the early medical abortion service in Northern Ireland and the relatively unique challenges around that provision, and we're very happy to do so this morning. As you will be aware, the current service is not commissioned, which places significant demands on our staff and our resources. In order to sustain this service and the support and the counselling required for women, adequate funding is required and is imperative on a recurrent basis. If we add the pressures faced by both staff and service users from groups fundamentally opposed to the provision of medical abortion in any form, the situation is sometimes far from satisfactory. Our position is clear. All patients and staff should be able to access any healthcare facility for any treatment free from harassment, intimidation and confrontation. We are relatively powerless to prevent peaceful protest, nor would we seek to do so. However, when protests cross the line and become intimidating, or if staff and service users are being harassed, we are forced, as some trusts have experienced, to call the PSNI for assistance. This is an aspect of the service which is extremely challenging. While trusts strive to provide safe spaces for women using the service, this can sometimes be difficult. Chair and members, thank you for listening and we'd be happy now to take any questions that you or members of the committee might have. Thank you, uh, Roisin. And I suppose um, from myself, first of all, two, I think two questions. The first one being, we have heard and seen evidence uh, previously in relation to the, uh, the the difficulty of operating uh, with with uncertainty around provision and around with the, the lack of commissioning and indeed the danger or the risk that we may lose f experts in fetal and consultants in, in fetal medicine as a result of, of that ongoing uncertainty. Is that something that would concern you? And is there, a, a, you know, are there, are there, are there concerns that, that uh, it's a very difficult um, area to operate in given the current situation? I can possibly answer that one, colleagues, if you would. I think it is ahead, chair to yeah, I think it is fair to suggest, Chair, that given the uncertainty of any service that is not fully commissioned um, and fully funded, uh, then we are we continually provide the resources to deliver this service. Now, what I would stress is our responsibility is to provide safe healthcare services at the point of need, and we are doing that, and we are doing that well, and staff are choosing to work in this area. Um, but as it is not commissioned, you are correct, Chair, that is placing an uncertainty on the staffing resources. So it, it is a very fair comment, Chair. Okay, thank you, Shane. And the second one then from me would be around, again, an issue that has uh, come up on numerous, across numerous sessions in relation to the supports and in some cases more, more the lack of supports for women through pregnancy. And that, that is both in terms of where there is a need to terminate a pregnancy or indeed to, to 
carry a pregnancy to term and beyond the level of supports. So can you outline for us your view on whether services are adequate or what services are particularly in need of resourcing or development in relation to supporting women in with pregnancies? I could take that one, um, Chair. Yeah, um, go ahead, Roshan, thank you. The service um, within the South Eastern Trust uh, has been uh, operational from June 2020, and we have a small but very dedicated and committed uh, team who are providing this service for women. Uh, as you know, it is provided in partnership with a charity, and uh, the charity um, are excellent at providing uh, very early counselling and support and triage and onward referral for, for all individual women uh, coming through to the Health and Social Care Trusts. Uh, whenever we um, speak, meet with our team, um, asking them what they would need to really do, provide this service as to the highest possible standards, they would say uh, that we need dedicated staff. So staff who are you know, really dedicated and, and sort of allocated to providing the early medical abortion service dedicated time and also there's a need for specialist training. Now, specialist training has been uh, provided uh, to date but there is a need for ongoing training not only in relation to the clinical practice but also uh, regarding counselling, uh, counselling pre and post uh, early medical abortion and ongoing pregnancy. Um, both the charity and the trusts have a role in counselling and support for women and not only then counselling but also you know this is really a wraparound service it needs to be provided by dedicated uh, medical practitioners with um with clinical nursing uh, staff uh, support staff but also uh, you know there is a need for counselling and sometimes social work support as well uh, which is important uh, what I would say is that uh, we carried out uh, a small review of the women who have attended our service and just to ask for their feedback. And all of them have said that positive uh, experience from the service and that they have felt supported, uh, despite obviously this is very, sometimes a very difficult time where women, you can understand, are nervous and apprehensive, but they ha are overwhelmingly grateful for a service that they feel is needed. So uh, I think, you know, hopefully that is uh, reassuring. Okay, thank you. And I will then go to members. So I'll go first of all to Deputy Chair Pam Cameron and then Paula Bradshaw. So go ahead, Pam, please. Thanks, Chair. Uh, sorry, I was just waiting for an opportunity to unmute there. Um, thank you to the panel from the Trust this morning. Appreciate your time on, on what is for Northern Ireland and continues to be a very difficult issue. Um, I have a couple of questions, but the first one I want to, to, to ask is whether uh, you as Trust believe your staff would benefit from an amendment to the law on abortion in severe fatal impairment, given the debate over unclear terms such as substantial risk and impairment. So that's my first question. Colleagues, uh, I, I can yeah, take Kathy. that Yeah, Yeah, Kathy. Pam, Go ahead, Kathy. Thanks, Chair. Pam, my staff um, see their role very similar to mine, and that is to fundamentally provide safe, lawful services which are free at the point of need uh, to those that need it, and to provide it in a way that is non-judgmental, supportive, and compassionate 
Um, it is not our job to judge people and their choices, nor is it our job to become involved in matters of policy or matters of politics or party opinion. And in fact, the GMC code and many of the other professional codes make it clear that whilst we may talk about our personal beliefs only if a patient asks you directly about them or indicates they would welcome such a discussion, you must not impose your beliefs and values on patients or cause distress by inappropriate or insensitive expression of them. So I need to be very clear here. Um, it is not my, my role nor that of my staff to judge anyone who turns up at a point in need and needs a service. We will offer that service free at the point of care and safely. That is our job. Yeah, Pam, go ahead. Yeah, okay, thank you um, for that, Cathy. I'll, I'll move on to my next um, questions, and it's in around the uh, Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, and they had recently made recommendations in respect of the operation of conscious objection provisions for medical professionals, and they were suggesting that they were too broad and um, unduly impact on services. So uh, I've uh, some questions on that. I wanted to ask you what, how... Uh, as trust you respond to that and uh, also what processes are in place to constructively facilitate exemptions for staff with deeply held beliefs. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, if conscious objection also is extended to ancillary services and uh, my final one on that is how many staff in each trust have availed of conscientious uh, objection provisions. I can give a view from the, I can give a view from the Southern Trust column if that would be helpful to begin with. In terms of conscience, in terms of conscience objectors, um, uh, we absolutely facilitate individuals, and that is all staff who would be involved in the provision in this case of early medical abortion um, to enable them to be conscious objectors um, and clearly at a local level. So our services are delivered in this particular case in our integrated women's directorate. So at a local level, um, they would keep a record of those individuals who would choose um, for conscious objections reasons not to participate in this service. And that is available to all. In terms of a record, we don't. I don't have a single standard record for the trust, so I couldn't answer that, Pam. But I'd be more than happy to go back and provide that back to the to the committee column, if to chair, if that if that's okay with you. Um, but I think it is it is very clear that we have local systems to allow people to uh, to raise and uh, and to avail of that. What I would say to date that has not had a detrimental impact on my ability to deliver this service. But what I would say, of course, is we're talking about an early medical abortion service, which at the moment is a relatively small service run by a relatively small number of professionals. And therefore, um, at the moment, that has not had a major impact on the delivery of early medical abortion. But the processes are there should people wish to avail of those processes. And if I can then okay, add to that. Yes, go sorry, ahead, Roisin, and I'll check with Dr. Jack as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chair. Just, Pam, to come back then from the Southeastern Trust, um, very similar. Again, just to reassure you, we absolutely do have a process in place for conscientious objection, objection by staff, all staff, and we follow the guidance produced by the Royal College and the Royal College of Nursing in relation to that. Uh, 
there are a small number of staff who have expressed conscientious objection and that's absolutely facilitated. Uh, they are working within the service and uh, are content to support women uh, pre and post. Um, so um, I, we're content with that. It doesn't have any impact, uh, also as Shane is saying, at this moment in time. But if the service was to grow dramatically, then obviously it's something we would have to keep under uh, close monitoring. And we lost Dr. Jack for a short time during that, so I just want to check with her. Kathy, do you have anything in relation to your uh, position on conscientious objectors to uh, uh, yeah, an, an impact on service? Yeah. Well, there is no impact on service. Uh, we do have a small number of conscientious objectors that work within maternity hospitals. Um, there is none that works within the early medical abortion. As you know, this was set up. Uh, very fast over the COVID when it became uh, a legal entity uh, and we needed to do something for women in need who couldn't access services elsewhere um, and therefore people chose to come and work in that service um, so we weren't going to ask people who had any significant conscientious objection but in maternity services I have a small number we are very much aware of them and we work with them and we support them because everybody is entitled to their view. But the rule is very clear. If you feel uncomfortable, then we pass it over to someone else who is comfortable in providing that service and no woman is left in need. Okay, thank Chair, you. Chair, yeah. can I just come back ahead, in there? That's great, yeah. thank you. Th thank you Brief, all for your briefly, response. Yeah, thank you all for your responses there. And just to go back on the first part of that question was in, in around uh, Human Rights Commission and their commentary around suggesting that this was too broad and un would unduly impact on services. So would it be fair to say that that um, that actually what's in place in terms of conscientious objection isn't too broad and doesn't unduly impact on services? If, if I could respond, I, what I can say at the moment, Pam, is that it has not unduly impacted. That's not the same to say that it might not into the future, but at the moment what I can evidence is that it has not had unduly undue impact. Thank you. Uh, likewise. For okay. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I'm moving then to Paula, and then Paula Bradshaw, then I'll be going to Jerry, and then I'll be going to Carol. So go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Chief Executives, for being here this morning. My first question is in relation to your positions as um, Chief Executives. And are you assured that the clinical governance framework is in place in each of your, each of your trusts to ensure that you adhere to the regulations around the provision for two healthcare workers, for example, um, who would um, be involved in the decision making just around clinical governance, please? First question. Can I take that um, from the Belfast Trust point of view? I have um, been assured. I have seen the data. I know our governance process. I am content we're offering a safe system uh, for those that need this service. Okay, thank you. And I see some nodding heads there. So I, I can concur from a Southern Trust perspective as well, Paula. Thank you. Okay, um, the next question is in relation to the issue of screening. 
Um, I can't remember which witness it was, but there was an indication and a read around some of the screening that we perform at the 20 week scan is performed in GB at 12 weeks and that can pick up some chromosomal abnormalities and other issues at an earlier stage. Is that something that you think that we should introduce here in Northern Ireland? Next question. Again, Chair, I'm happy to take that and colleagues. Routine screening um, earlier in Northern Ireland is not available for fetal abnormalities. Um, it is not commissioned and therefore not routinely offered. I do believe it would be helpful. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, next question is in relation to genetic testing. And I suppose it follows on from that last question there around um, mothers who have multiple pregnancies where the same issues keep arising. And I'm just wondering, do you think that there's enough um, capacity within our trust to actually to work with the woman post-pregnancy around testing to see if there's anything to be done to support them for future pregnancies. Thank you. So we, we in Belfast, Chair, I'll, I'll take that because it's probably the regional service, do offer uh, that service. Our consultant geneticists are involved in counselling uh, when issues like this arise along with um, our neonatology. Uh, and then, of course, if the pregnancy proceeds, we then also involve at times the bereavement midwife. Um, so we do offer support and counselling. Um, there may be a need to grow that service uh, as other services are commissioned, uh, Paula. Um, so uh, can I take that back and get a little bit more detail about what I do offer? Uh, and whether or not there is a need to expand that service. But it is available. Okay, thank you. And finally, and, and I, I just want to thank all your trusts for stepping up um, when, when there haven't been commissioned services. And I know a, a lot of women are, are extremely grateful that they don't have to travel to England. The one criticism I would have is that there isn't enough information available on your trust websites. We do know that women are Googling and they're ending up finding places like Stanton who don't necessarily provide the support that they're actually looking for at that time. I'm just wondering, is this something going forward that you could look at so that people, women facing a crisis pregnancy or other can have timely, accurate information around um, referral to the central access point and other services within your trust to support them at that critical time? Thank you. Chair, if I may, I will certainly go back and review our website, Paula, um, to see what, I mean, at the end of the day, any service that we provide must be accessible. And our websites are very important ways of making those services accessible. So um, if the comment come back to you that it hasn't felt that accessible because of what's on our website, I will absolutely go back and review that and see, see what should be on our website. And Paula, um... We're also happy to review. Uh, we do know that on our trust website, we have the referral to the central uh, access point um, through the charity. So that's uh, how we've gone. I suppose there is the, the, the need to provide you know, clear information for women on how to access the service, but balanced against, I suppose, the sensitivity and the need for confidentiality and privacy. So we're always mindful of that as well. So happy to review with others. Thank and you. Paula, I think that's really helpful feedback. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I will certainly go back uh, and make sure it's reviewed to see if there's anything more we need to do. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. 
Thank you, Paula. Um, there is a wee bit of feedback on your sound, Kathy, but we're, we're hearing you and following the sense of it okay, I think, but just I'm not sure if there's anything you can do to reduce that. But anyway, in the meantime, I will go to Jerry Carroll. Um, Jerry Lanaray Lidahol. Um, <clears throat> my, my camera's not working for some reason, sure, but hopefully you can all hear me okay, and, and thanks, Chief Executives. We are, um, seeing, we are, we are seeing you, Jerry. We are seeing you. That's good to know. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, just just a uh, first comment um, you, you, to concur with, uh, with yourself, Chair, and others about the uh, uh, the protests and obviously healthcare facilities and facilities that uh, may provide uh, information or, or, or termination um, procedures. I mean, it's obviously uh, abhorrent and, and, and very, very disturbing and, and concerning. And, and also, uh, Dr. Jack, you know, the, the correspondence we received uh, from from your uh, team detailing the, the security personnel having to be put in place uh, for for women getting access to services is very very concerning. So just a, a comment from me on that. Um, just on on the bill, I, I know I think it was Kathy that said you know uh, you, you you spoke you all aren't going to comment on policy and and, and give your opinion and, and that's is fair enough I suppose. Uh, but basically just to ask, I mean if this bill were implemented. Um, I'm I'm trying to think uh, and I'm you know concerned about the impact that it would have uh, on women um, and maybe if you could, you can speak to this because obviously we've heard this uh, bill would uh, essentially prevent a handful of terminations potentially from taking place but in the long run could actually um, um, make more uh, take place because the the twenty week limit might uh, force women to make decisions in a quicker um, manner when they don't have all the information uh, or all the uh, support in place. So um, is there any view in terms of if the bill was implemented, rather not if you agree or disagree with it, but what the impact would be on already, I uh, suppose, limited services? Uh, could anybody comment on that? Sure, I can take Shane, the point about Yeah, go ahead, Kathy. If you, you want. I mean, Jerry... Yeah. This, you know, this does concern us. My staff recognise that peaceful protest is an absolute um, right uh, and should be allowed. But I don't think it is a comfortable way um, for individuals have to access their work uh, or to be concerned and worried about patient welfare. Uh, and I have to tell you that I have had two incident reports since we started this service regarding the protesters. Um, and I do know that many patients report that they are worried uh, in an already anxious and stressful situation for them. And I fundamentally believe that no one should feel intimidated by any protest. Um, but we have put on um, extra security. Um, there is a security presence at the front door. We have put in special glass in the windows. We're now putting special glass into the front door we are installing an outside security camera and I would like to thank PSNI who have been very helpful uh, on occasions um, where it's been necessary. Would I like to have had to have done that? No, I would prefer to spend that money um, differently uh, and for betterment of patient and service user experience in a different way. But it has been a necessity for me. Um, so I just wanted to put that caveat round there and there have been two incident reports regarding the protesters that we have met outside our EMI um, service. 
With regards to your, your other point, Jerry, I don't believe I'm qualified to answer that. That's one that we would have to look to clinicians to see, well, what would the impact be? Would it drive demand before 20 weeks, et cetera? So I really don't feel, and I know I know we said at the beginning we wouldn't, but I just don't even feel that I would be qualified to make a comment on that, Jerry, and I think it would be, um, it would be a, a pointless thing for me to do. So apologies. What, I mean, clearly clinicians are feeding into the consultation and I'm sure that's one that clinicians would be able to give, give a view on. Thanks. That's the, kind of in, the indications that they've give uh, certainly my understanding to the committee's presentation will, will be that it would increase um, the number of potentially a uh, number of terminations, you know, before that 20 uh, period. And another point obviously is that, you know, people who are going through, uh, you know, difficult pregnancies would be, you know, possibly, um, that would be traumatized by by the by the focus of some aspects of this bill. Uh, just finally, um, I suppose maybe um, if we get a comment about the fact that you know there's been almost 400 women um, during during a pandemic when people are, were told to stay at home and not travel, uh, were forced to travel for um, abortion services um, because um, there was lack of or limited um, after the 10 week period. So, like I said, almost 400 women forced to travel. Um, in the last year, so I mean, to me, that's at any time and for any aspect of healthcare, that's um, very, very troubling and difficult. But with with terminations as well, it can be um, more uh, difficult uh, for women as well. So, just a brief comment on, on the lack of um, provision there. Uh, if, if anybody wants to comment, thanks. So, just to take that uh, in in Belfast, we recognise the EMA service is currently nine weeks uh, and six days but there is a gap between the 10 and 12 weeks we are um, actively looking at how we could provide this um, you know although it has to be done in a hospital uh, and there are issues around cost pressures for us to do that but I need to assure you that we are actively looking at how we can currently do that Jerry. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. And I see we are now joined by uh, Jennifer Welsh, who is Chief Executive of the Northern Trust. Jennifer, you're very welcome to, to the meeting here this, this morning. Um, so I'll go back then to members' questions, and we're moving on then to Orlea Flynn. Orlea, you're all Yep, Gormi, I'll get to call him, and thanks very much um, to the panel. Um, so just in the previous session with the Minister there, we, we had a bit of a discussion around... Um, the, the commissioning of abortion services and the minister, we had wrote to him around, obviously the committee did have serious concerns around those protests that were taking place um, at some of the, the clinics. And um, in, in the minister's response on the 16th of June, he did confirm that the Department of Health is resuming the work to develop the service specification for the commissioning of abortion services. And my first question really is just around um, does the the trusts and in your own positions as as chief executives, are you having any input into that process um, that that's currently underway? And my second question: some of the feedback that we got from a previous briefing where we heard from the clinicians themselves on this issue, one of the big issues that came up was around um, the psychological supports for for women going through um, you know these processes. And 
there there would be concerns that um certainly there, there does seem to be some form of a, a post-court lottery depending on which trust you fall under and i know at present in terms of maternity psychological support it's only the belfast trust that's providing that um and i suppose just thinking about going forward um in terms of these services and and if when they are commissioned um, just some of your opinions around, you know, the need to build on those important mental health supports that, that many women and families clearly need when they're going through these difficult periods. Thank you. Thank you. So who wants to lead on that one? Rush, I can start. Rush, Rush, I yeah. Go yes, ahead, uh, thank you, Colin. Uh, just to... Uh, say that there has been requests for nominations uh, from all trusts to sit on the regional group to input into the development of the commissioning specification so we will be actively involved in that um, and working with the health and social care board uh, and in relation to um, the point in regarding psychological support uh, I suppose across the trust there will be different levels of psychological support that women may need uh, within the South Eastern Trust um, we would be providing a counselling service within the early medical abortion service. And then also we have, um, as Cathy mentioned, the bereavement midwifery service as well. But if there are further um, sort of higher level of psychological support needed, then yes, that would be accessed through Belfast Trust. Okay, and any other any other uh, members wishing to or go yeah. ahead, Shane? If I think I think it's it's a really important point. Good commissioning commissions a complete service, so it commissions the service, uh, uh, and the aim of commissioning is is to meet the need. So my job as a provider is then to respond to that commissioning intention and be able to deliver service. And therefore, I think it's very important that when we look at the commissioning um, framework or what's going to be in it, it isn't just about one act it's about the complete pathway for women through this so i think it's really important that we influence strongly the commissioning process to make sure the service that is commissioned is a genuine end-to-end -end service which looks at psychological as well as physiological challenges of that complete pathway and, and i think all our trusts are certainly up for making sure a fulsome commissioning plan is put in place to get the right service um, for our patients Thank you, Shane Roisin. Okay, There's thank you. And what yeah. Shane has absolutely made that clear. Any commission service needs to include the entirety uh, of a woman's need in this situation uh, and that of the wider family. So it absolutely would be essential um, that psychology services would be included uh, in the commissioning if this, um, when this is commissioned. And Chair Ornia, just to just to back that up as well, the services that we're currently providing are interim services and, and by their very nature are, are limited in terms of what it is that we're able to provide. So I would strongly support um, what we would be able to do with a fully uh, properly commissioned service. Okay, thank you. And just can I ask when that process of engagement with yourself started in relation to the, the, the developing the service? Just Jennifer, can you indicate there? Yeah. Or go ahead, Rashin. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I was just checking there. It was at the end of May. We have the request from the Health and Social Care Board to start the work on the specification. Okay, thank you. 
Okay, thank you. So I'm going then to Jonathan Buckley and then to Carol Nikhilin. And um, so I'll go back to yourself, Jonathan. Go ahead with your question, please. Thank you, Chair. I was just sorry, getting off mute there. Um, thank you very much for, for your presentations. I suppose probably primarily I would always say to begin these sessions whenever I'm doing them that for me, health service resources should be focused on saving lives and not taking life. Uh, I'm very, very clear on that. I'd also like to raise, because I know it has been raised on a number of, of occasions, that people do have a right uh, to protest against abortion services in a respectful and peaceful way. And um, there have been allegations of harassment against staff and patients. And of course, where criminal offences have taken place, these should be reported to the PSNI. However, the presence of protest and opposition is protected under the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, and in one day in and of itself is not illegal. So I would just like to, a couple of points leading on from them. Uh, would it be fair to say that the majority of those protesting against the operation of abortion service do so peacefully? And on what grounds have the PSNI had cause to physically remove individuals from trust sites in the incidents that you've outlined? So I, can I just say we have been running this service in the centre of Belfast, as you know, since the end of April 2020. Uh, and I have told you that there's only been two incident reports. So I think, Jonathan, that makes it very clear that the vast majority of these protests are peaceful and respectful, and we have no problem with that. And that's what I started my answer to you um, regarding the protesters. Uh, but I think it is right and proper that I point out that there have been two. They're very small in number when you consider that it's well over a year. But equally, it is important that we recognise that and that I have had to put resource into improving security for those that use the service and those that work there. Okay, and I suppose that's good to put in context because I think there is some that have attempted to, to use uh, what you have described as a minority of disturbances as a widespread issue and, and in my opinion, have demonised the right to legitimate protest against a service in which they feel is taking life. So that that's that's the first point. Secondly, um, trusts have been keen to stress that resourcing of early medical abortion services has not led to a reduction in financial or staff support for other key or frontline services. So this begs the question, where did those staff and budget lines come from? Was there a recruitment process? How would the trust approach uh, any full commission of services from a resource standpoint? Okay, so I have two indications. I have one from Jennifer and one from Shane. Uh, I'll take Jennifer first and then I'll come back to you, Shane. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, Jonathan, if I could go back to your first uh, point, first of all, just in relation to protests. And uh, I'm conscious that other, other colleagues covered elements for their own area. Um, earlier on. Um, in relation to incidents that we have reported, now that's in incidents that we've reported within the organisation in relation to protest. We actually have 15. Um, so one in February of this year, one in March, two in April, three in May and eight in June. So it was an escalating situation. I agree with you and I so strongly support the right for a peaceful protest. And the majority of these have been peaceful protests. 
on a weekly basis at the service that's provided within the, within the Northern area. Chair, I can advise that we moved the service again yesterday, but up until the point of yesterday, it was becoming extremely challenging, both for the staff providing the service and indeed for those accessing the service. The, the nature of the incidents that we reported internally are things like uh, protesters outside um, the clinic intimidating staff and clients who were attending the service and also intimidating staff and clients across various different services. We have had incidents where people were using graphic images and, and language which was upsetting for individuals accessing the service. We have incidents where protesters have been taking video and photographs of service users without permission being sought and on occasion we have had to seek the support of the PSNI. We have incidents of a member of the public spray painting a sign and, and spray painting a protester as well. So this has been extremely, extremely challenging. I do agree and strongly support the right to, to peaceful protest and without disruption. Um, a bit like Cathy, we have had to take some extraordinary measures in terms of trying to support staff and to support those individuals accessing the service and we have moved the service uh, several times. So we have moved it yet again to another location which I'm not going to disclose, I'm sure you'll understand why, but the service yesterday took, took place peacefully and without disruption for any of the staff or for any of those uh, needing to access the service or indeed those in neighbouring services as well and, and we hope we're able to continue with that. In relation to the second point uh, around the, the funding, as I mentioned earlier it is an interim service so it is, it is not the full service that ideally should be provided and therefore it is, it is limited. We are doing this on a non-recurrent funded basis and we are doing this with the aid of, of locum staff. So I can assure you that it is not impacting on any of the other services that we are fully commissioned to provide. Uh, but we have indicated to the Health and Social Care Board and to the department that this is not a long-term sustainable solution. Um, and the answer to that is in a, in a properly commissioned uh, service to ensure the sustainability. And obviously that's the work ongoing at the moment then um, with the Department of Health and with the social, Health and Social Care Board around that service specification. Thank you, Jennifer. And Shane, I think you're maybe looking in on the first question and if you have anything on the second question. Yeah, my response actually would have been very, very similar to Jennifer. We have also had situations where patients um, of other services have written to me to raise their concern about feeling intimidated as they've walked through the protest. We too have had to move the service on more than one occasion and in fact where our service is now provided is not, in fact, we provide it in two locations. Neither of those two locations are the two locations we started with because of the level of um, intimidation and fear that our staff felt. I must agree with Jennifer, you have to, we have to balance that with the right for peaceful protest and it is important that in our society people are entitled to peacefully protest. But I can reflect back to the committee how some people have felt with regards to um, both verbally, images, etc. as they have tried to make their way into services and what I would stress is that we provide these services on facilities that provide many services and I have been engaged with a number of mental health clients who felt very disturbed by the process etc. So it is a balancing act because we must uphold the right to peaceful protest. There's, there's not a question on that chair but it is a balancing act 
and I have staff and patients who are feeling concerned on, on, on both sides of that. Uh, with regards to the point that Jennifer makes about funding, it's exactly the same position. This is locum, short-term and non-recurrent funding. For this to be a sustainable solution without having an impact on the services, Jonathan, you are correct, it would need to be commissioned and that would need to be commissioned because um, any good commissioning process would then look at the resources required to provide this in a sustainable way. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, moving on then to Carl Nikhilan. Carl Lanaray Lidahal. So thank you very much for your presentation at the committee this morning, or this, uh, yeah, still this morning. So um, I mean, the, a lot of the questions have been asked, and I appreciate the responses that you've made. Um, but I just want to um, repeat what NIACT and indeed RCM said at our committee and indeed the Royal Colleges, um, that first of all, these are professional people offering professional services in a sensitive and compassionate way. And I believe, you know, that needs to be accepted and respected. They also re recorded their concern and indeed alarm in some occasions about the way in which women are accessing services. And as you all have pointed out, that um, the balance between the right to protest and what is considered acceptable protests or an acceptable ways to protest hasn't been met. So some of the graphic images been thrust on people's faces, staff and patients having to be, staff having to accompany patients to their vehicles, then staff having to be accompanied by security back to the health and social care setting is not peaceful. Equally, it is not peaceful when people have said that when trying to access healthcare, not around EMA, but another form of healthcare, they too have been subject to um, verbal abuse and indeed have had graphic images um, put in front of them. With all that said, my concern is around the commissioning aspect of all this. So I appreciate what you are saying and what you have done. Um, I mean, our concerns around the Western Trust primarily as well and the fact that um, there has been a suspension from April. So it's just to try and, and find out what's happening there. And also when we're talking about commissioning with the ongoing discussion of the, the dissolution of the Health and Social Care Board and the role of commissioning um, there, could you perhaps respond um, to the point that it isn't just the EMA services, it's the entire um, wrap around both pre and post um, uh, services that need to be um, implemented and commissioned as part of that as well, including the psychological supports. And then the last question, Chair, is, you know, the charity in the middle of all this, you know, the central access point, um, if their funding, as an example, um, isn't continued and there are as you have outlined, uh, measures taken to relocate services on several occasions because of what people have had to endure. And your reluctance to try and give additional information online to protect everyone. Then how can we ensure that that access point is supported to make sure that people who need the services most are going to get them? Because the last thing we need 
is the examples that when people go online, they're referred to uh, a, a so-called health um, and social care setting um, about abortion. And it's not it's not about um, early medical abortions. It's far from it. It's it's quite disturbing what some of the evidence we have heard. So I'll leave it at that turn just to put my thanks and gratitude on the record. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. And I will check with Cathy uh, Jack, first of all, just because Cathy's at a bit of a disadvantage there that she can't indicate, and I'll take indications from the, any other panel members. But Cathy, I'll just check with you first. Do you want to pick up on some of those points? Uh, so I, I think um, Carol makes a number of really important points. Uh, I see this as an entire pathway, uh, and Carol will know that for other reasons, I believe that psychology is absolutely essential in any pathway of care. Um, so I would want to see it fully commissioned. These are local services. They are not regional services. They are local services provided on a population basis. So when the board is going through its changes, I would see this being commissioned locally. Although I do think from a region, we need to make sure it's equitable and that there isn't differences across the different trusts. So we can't get a postcode lottery, but it is delivered in a local manner. Uh, but actually the specification uh, and the resource is there. I, I do think it's, I'd also like to reiterate that the facilities that do provide this service also do provide many, many other services uh, and are accessed by many service users not just those who find themselves in the early pregnancy and are struggling uh, with what that may entail for them. Um, I think the charity work has been a really good example of a partnership approach. Uh, it offers uh, open and holistic um, you know, options for women to consider, to then discuss. You know, it is not a one-stop shop we offer. We, we, we discuss it with them, we give them time to reflect, and we make sure that all of the options are there so they have fully informed choices. Any, re any redu reduction in that central charity, um, Carol, would really concern me, would really concern me. Um, but nevertheless, my role as a chief exec is to provide a service that is legal um, and safe uh, where there is a point of need, and I will endeavour to do that. Um, I do think the charity work with the trusts right across the region has been an excellent example of partnership, um, and I'd like to see that continue. Thank you. Uh, yes, Jennifer, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Chair. Uh, just to strongly support what uh, what Cathy was saying um, uh, on all of the points, but I particularly want to pick up in relation to the charity Informing Choices Northern Ireland. I, I think there are, there are huge benefits there in terms of having that centralised access point uh, across Northern Ireland and then linking out across uh, to all of the trusts. It ensures that consistency and approach the standardisation um, of what we were talking about there, the standardisation of information. Um, if that was withdrawn for any reason, we would have to look at how we could develop that on a local basis. But I actually think it, it is stronger uh, as it is from that centralised point and having all of the trusts linking into that. So I would be strongly supportive of that, of that service continuing and trying to support it as best we can. Thank you. Um, any other comments from any other panellists? Roshkin, are you looking in there? Chair, um, 
I was actually just going to say exactly the same point as Jennifer, but I would echo um, from the Southeastern Trust that really uh, we would feel the central access point is a very important part of this service and recognising that referrals come from right across Northern Ireland and not only from the individual women themselves, but you know a range of healthcare professionals and GPs referring in. And I really think that that is so important as the initial point of contact and that then we will all work together to ensure that there is a consistent service provided in a, of an equal standard uh, right across the region. I think that is very, very important to do so. And it would also, I think it would cause, you know, it would cause, you know, added pressure for individual trusts to be the first point of contact and the referral point, I think it is much better to do this through uh, informing choices or something similar. Thank you. And just want to check with you finally, Shane, there, if there's anything. I'm no, sure nothing, nothing, not. nothing further to add to my colleagues. Okay, thank you very much for that. And I'm going then, and this is for me at this point in time, finally, I don't have any other indications. I'm going to Cara Hunter. Cara, go ahead. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to the panel for being here um, this afternoon. I would just like to comment um, on the topic of protesting um, outside these clinics. Um, you know, I think no woman, regardless uh, of their decision, should have to endure the level of harassment and intimidation that we've seen. Uh, and I'm mindful of some of the recent incidents um, that Jennifer has touched on within my constituency in the wider Korean area. And there's an evident need these buffer zones, these these access zones, um, and also an intimidation aside, there's a real concern for patient confidentiality, um, and you know why we wholeheartedly respect that peaceful protest aspect of things. These these clinics, these um places, these medical facilities are an entirely inappropriate place for these protests, I believe, to take place. Um, I just have two questions, and I think Jennifer, it might be yourself. Um, they're directed to you just on the basis of the Northern Trust. Um, I, I know it's been touched on previously but can you just elaborate further on what steps are being taken around buffer zones um, and what conversations you're having with the department on this matter and also um, due to the nature of these protests do you foresee um, the uh, current service being moved from its current location thank you okay um, thank you Cara so yes I've covered a little bit of this but just to confirm um, we have been concerned about the service um, and in the previous location and made a decision to move it yet again uh, and it moved yesterday um, so it is in an, an alternate location where we can better provide for a buffer zone um, and it took place yesterday peacefully without any incident uh, much better circumstances for all of the staff involved uh, and also for the individuals who were accessing that clinic, not to mention neighbouring services uh, as well and other people sim uh, simply in that particular area. Um, so we we are hopeful that this will remain the case and I'm not going to disclose that, that location. Um, it, is, it is quite challenging to provide buffer zones. It is quite challenging in the nature of healthcare facilities because by their very nature they are, they are public buildings. And we have engaged with PSNI in relation to how we can support people both to provide a peaceful process and to be able to access the services uh, safely and effectively. So we believe that the solution that we have at the moment will work, but we will keep a very close eye on, on that. I, I hope we don't have to move it again. Um, and as I say, we are engaging with PSNI to make sure that where, where we have now chosen remains a, a safe and appropriate place. Okay, that's that's reassuring. Jennifer, thank you very much. Thank you.
Okay, thank you. Um, any other comments in relation to that? Does any of the other panel want to come in on any additional questions there or on any of that or additional to that question? No. Okay, um, thank you. So there was there was a, another um yeah, it has it has been fairly well dealt with, I suppose, around all of the psychological supports, including counselling and signposting, and that's that's I think hugely important. Um I I would be hugely concerned around um what we're hearing and, and it, it adds up to and I also respect the right for people to protest freely. But when we hear about services being moved, intimidation security guards having to be put on to uh, provide women and people with medical care it creates a hugely worrying picture overall and you know almost almost where where services are being driven underground a clandestine nature and and i have to say that is far from satisfactory so um i think we will want to maybe give that some further thought in in terms of our committee consideration this morning but for now i want to thank each and every one of the chief executives who have uh, been able to attend this morning. It is regrettable that the Western Trust, given the situation there, in particular with, with their, their suspension of service, haven't been able to attend. And uh, you know that, that is regrettable. But thank you for assisting the committee in terms of all these considerations. I, I want to wish each and every one of you all the best in what I know has been a horrendously difficult time with COVID. And I want to acknowledge the work and effort of you and your entire staff in dealing with that and also to acknowledge that we are by no means out of the woods yet, either in terms of health pressures generally or COVID in particular and how they interact with each other. So we do have an understanding of a committee as of, of the huge difficulties you face, the balancing acts you're trying to perform in terms of hospitals already at full and over full capacity and the looming vista that we could have for their cases coming through the system now. So as a committee, we, we want to uh, just acknowledge your work and, and to say that we will do all we can to play our part to, uh, to support you in, in terms of delivery of the crucial service that you provide to our community. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you for appearing here. Now we've slipped into the afternoon, so we've crossed the yard arm, but we appreciate your attendance and Gora Okay. Thank you. Thank you, very, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Chair. Thank you. Members, I, uh, I, I have to say I feel that there is a kind of a, a almost new and further urgency now around the issue of protest. It would appear to me that uh, that there's perhaps an, uh, an escalating situation or a deteriorating situation. When we hear of services being moved around, we're hearing of funding having to go in to protect people. And I think we, we actually would need to, obviously this is happening as we, as we speak almost, I think we need to seek a further update from the department in relation to what it's doing and how it's supporting um, or how it's even coordinating with the, the Department for Justice in relation to the uh, people's access to a whole range of services. And this is not, and it's been pointed out very clearly there, this is not simply impacting around around those people who are seeking um, care with or, or medical care with pregnancies. This is impacting many others and impacting staff. And I think we need to recognize that as well. So I would propose that we write again to the department and ask them in light of the worrying information we've heard today, can they provide us with a written update that can be circulated to members? Any other views members or any other points? Um, Pam, go ahead. Yeah. yeah thanks chair. Um, I, I don't disagree with your, with your request there at all. Um, although, uh, I mean, I'm on record 
uh, of talking about how important it is that, that our religious freedoms and also the right to protest are upheld. And I'm glad to hear that the trusts uh, endorse that sentiment as well. Uh, I'm just kind of uh, very conscious that while we're supposed to be scrutinising the, the private members bill on the severe fetal impairment, abortion amendment bill, and we seem to be getting kind of off topic or it's or, and we're getting distracted by the issue around buffer zones and and protests. And I'm just not sure as a committee that's where we should be. I understand how the topic comes up and comes up continually, but I think we shouldn't be distracted from the the actual work of the committee uh, and concentrating on on the actual topic in, in front of us and the reason why we're discussing and the reason why we're uh, talking to trust today was actually around the PMB, not around protests and buffer zones. Well, I do think given the important work we have to do on the PMB, we certainly should remain focused on that. However, we cannot as a health committee, I feel, ignore information that we're hearing in a committee session. And I think it will be remiss of us not to not to follow up on that. There are there are, are clearly concerns being expressed there in the course of the session. So I think uh, I think given that's the case, I certainly would be um, proposing that we, we write to the department again and ask for an update. Would members be generally content? Uh, Chair, yeah. uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Again, yeah, it, would, ahead. it would depend on, on the content, I suppose, probably, as I've outlined before, uh, you know, very much fundamentally the right, uh, the human right, the European Convention human right uh, to peaceful protest must be respected. And I think uh, what what is needed here is the substantial evidence base for how uh, you know, actions in which are being called for, particularly at the committee here in relation to buffer zones, how, if at all, that would even be effective. Because uh, I suppose I oppose them on the basis of, of freedom of speech and, and freedom to assemble. And I already know that there are other laws and regulations that are already in place throughout the United Kingdom and indeed here in Northern Ireland to protect people against aggressive behaviour in public space. And we also, we also must note that there will be those that perhaps disagree with the pro-life movement uh, in itself that may complain about the protest uh, due to that very reason as opposed to actually the message that they're trying to get across. So I don't support any aggressive behaviour, whether that be from protesters or indeed whether that be directed at protesters. But I just feel that I have to put that on record because there will be strongly held views either way on this. And I think it is important that we do so respectfully. But I think it's important that, that I put my view on the record on that. Sure. Can I thank you. Thank you, John. I'll come back. I'll come back to you in a minute, Carol. I have a couple of other indications, but I will note I will note you and I'll come back to you. So um in relation to the evidence uh, issue that you raised there, Jonathan, we I feel we have heard very clear evidence today of services being shifted around to try to continue the service, and that's unsatisfactory. We've also heard evidence that resources are being put into security um, personnel at hospitals, and I think that's um, clearly something that would be of concern to to everyone. So there, there has been significant evidence, I feel, presented already, and, and certainly the department can back that up. So I have some indications then of Jerry Carroll, Alan Chambers, and then I'm going to Carroll. So go ahead, Jerry Carroll, please. Thanks, Chair. I just want to speak in favour of your proposal. I mean, it was clear from the evidence today and, you know, what I've heard over the last number of weeks that people are being intimidated. I mean, it's visible to see if anybody looks uh, on the internet. Um, so I'd support your uh, proposal. But also I think there's a uh, there's a entanglement which isn't uh, fully accurate in terms of the rate of protest. 
I mean, there is no absolute right to protest in the sense that uh, they always come with rights and responsibilities. Um, you know, you can't just uh, say whatever you want. There has to be some recognition of um, certain other rights. Um, and obviously, the fact that these demonstrations um, are happening outside medical centres, medical facilities, and they're causing people, as we have heard from Chief Executive today, to be um, severely impacted by it, their mental health impacted by it. I know some of the members talk about mental health uh, on the committee and elsewhere, but seemingly uh, ignore that point today that people's mental health are impacted when they see some of these demonstrations outside medical facilities. So I think there's a, an entanglement of two different issues. There is no restriction on the right to protest for people who are anti-choice. They demonstrate quite regularly. Um, so what we're talking about here is outside medical centres that causes harm for people who are either looking um, access to EMA or other information around termination or other people who are not, but are impacted by their uh, appearance at these um, facilities. So I think the, the two issues are completely disconnected, uh, but I think uh, we should write to the, the department to make them aware of the quite distressed information, distressing information we heard this morning. Thank you, Jerry. Alan Chambers, go ahead, Alan, please. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Chairman, yeah, I, I don't disagree with us taking that action. I think it is appropriate. Uh, but can I add that perhaps it would also help if we copied a letter to um, not only the Chief Counsel, but to the Northern Ireland Policing Board and draw to their attention uh, our concerns uh, uh, around uh, these protests and the fact that the law may be getting broken or it may not be getting broken, but uh, that's 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 a call for for the police. So I, I say I would propose that we also include um, the chief council and the Northern Ireland Policing Board um, and highlighting our concerns around this issue, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Alan and Carol. Yeah, again, just to support your proposal, and I think Gullen's suggestion is a good one. Um, I believe that the chief executives who presented to us in a public forum to be scrutinised and questioned shouldn't. Their evidence is their evidence. And we've had different professional bodies in who have said similar, who are also professionals, and some of us have spoken to people who have tried to access early medical abortions but the more disturbing thing is for women who are trying to access other services not related to AMA who have been subjected to abuse, some of which have had a series of miscarriages, and some of those images are anything but peaceful. So I, I, I think we all accept that some of, most of us come at things here from a different position. And to be fair, it wasn't, we wanted to talk about the policy development around the bill, but the chief executives made it clear that they were prepared to do that. So I think that's why it went, went down the road that it did. But just to say, I, I think it would send a strong message out, um, that people should be able to access health and social care without harassment or intimidation. Thank you. So I do think we have we have broad agreement from the committee that that we do right. I think I, I also agree that Alan's additional suggestion there is is appropriate and a useful addition. So I think there's there is agreement with uh, mem members' positions are noted, but there is agreement among the committee. So um, okay, we we will go ahead with and, and issue that letter and await correspondence back. Okay, members. So I'm going to move on then to our further. Sorry, yeah, uh, who's, who's looking in? 
Paula. I didn't want to necessarily come in on that last topic, but I was just wondering now that we've had all of the evidence sessions, um, I wonder could the clerk then send us out an email with all the written submissions in one email so that we can scrutinise it over the summer. Obviously, we've had the hand surge, but it, can we have the written submissions in one email so we can go through those as well? Thank you. Yeah, I'll just check with clerk, but I'm sure that would be no problem. Keith? We'll have a look at getting them all on one PDF. They are all available on members' um, ECP system. Um, they're all there. All the submissions are also on the committee's website. Well, they're, they're all published there as well, but we'll look at getting them onto one document for you. It's not necessarily that, that, that it's on one document, even if they're just sent forward as individual documents. It's just it's, yeah. easier, it's easier to work through them whenever you, you have them. I, I don't like our system on the computer. Uh, I'll send a link out. They're, they're all published online, so they are um, all separately. So they are under their, their organisation. So I'll get that link emailed out to members. Okay, thank you, Claire. Okay, members, so we're moving on then to um, the first of our of our regulations here this afternoon. So the first one, item eight, is draft uh, SR on the food and feed hygiene and safety, miscellaneous amendments, regs, um, I refer members to the papers at tab 8 of the pack, particularly to the clerk's memo at tab 8.1. I'd like to remind members that this draft SR was on last week's agenda, but that we agreed to defer it until today as the examiner of statutory rules had identified a drafting issue. The Food Standards Agency has now led an amended draft SR, and the FSA advises that the rule will ensure that authorities will continue to have the powers to undertake official controls required by this legislation to verify compliance with feed and food hygiene and safety law. The committee did consider the SL1 policy proposal for the SR at its meeting on the 10th of June, and we agreed that we were content that the department make the statutory rule. The examiner of statutory rules has no comments, and the SR is subject to the draft affirmative resolution procedure and will not be made unless and until affirmed by a resolution in the Assembly. So, members, any further issues to wish to raise in relation to this SR? No, thank you, members. Then, can I ask members to can we agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered the draft SR, the Food and Feed Hygiene and Safety Miscellaneous Amendments Regulations NI, and recommends that it be approved by the Assembly? Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. SR twenty twenty one forward slash 172 is the health protection coronavirus restrictions amendment uh, restrictions regulations 2021 i refer you members to the papers of tab 9 and in particular to the clerk's memo at tab 9.1 this sr makes a technical change in relation to the requirement to produce a risk assessment for a gathering i remind members that the sr is subject to the confirmatory procedure and that the examiner of statutory rules has no issues to raise Members will recall that the committee was briefed on this SR at last week's meeting when an issue was raised in relation to enforcement measures. The committee agreed to defer its consideration until further information was provided. The department's response to that issue is at tab 9.4 of the table pack. So are members content with the department's response in that or any other issues to raise? Yeah, members content, thank you. So uh, if members... If members have uh, no other issues to raise, then 
Can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2021 forward slash 172, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations NA 2021, Amendment Number 7, Regulations NA 2021, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Moving on, members, the next two agenda items are both SL1 policy proposals relating to amendments to the misuse of drugs legislation. I refer members to the papers of tab 10 and 11 of the pack. Departmental officials are here today to give a short briefing on the proposed statutory rules and answer any questions that members may have. Uh, and in relation to that, I would like to now welcome Mr. Kianis Ward, uh, who is head of Madison's regulatory group. Kianis, can you hear me there? Okay. This call can hear you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Kianis. And we're also joined by Miss Isabel Riddell, who's acting head of the Madison's policy branch. Isabel, can you hear us? I can indeed, Chair. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So I'll go back to yourself, Canis, then just to check. Um, is it yourself doing the briefing, uh, initial briefing, or um, Isabel, and whichever of you are doing that, please proceed ahead with it. Thank you. Okay, it's myself, Isabel Riddell. Okay, so first of all, thank you for the opportunity to brief the Health Committee today on the proposed two statutory rules relating to the rescheduling of three novel or new benzodiazepines under the Misuse of Drugs Regulations Northern Ireland 2002 and to them being designated under the Misuse of Drugs Designation Amendment Order Northern Ireland 2001. It might be helpful to provide some background and context as to how dangerous or harmful drugs are controlled and the purpose of the proposed legislative amendments and will also provide some information about benzodiazepines themselves. While we appreciate that two slots have been allocated today for these SRs, they are interlinked and therefore this opening statement is applicable to both SRs. I hope that's acceptable to the committee, Chair. Okay. Well, the committee members, if there are specific things they want to go back on with questions, um, I think committee members can do that. So that should be fine. Okay. So the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, which I will refer to as the 1971 Act from this point, controls drugs that are dangerous or otherwise harmful. Schedule 2 to the 1971 Act specifies these drugs and groups them in three categories. Part 1 lists drugs known as Class A drugs, Part 2 lists Class B drugs and Part 3 lists Class C drugs. This classification provides a framework within which criminal penalties are set with reference to the harm that a drug has or is capable of having when misused and the type of illegal activity undertaken with regards to that drug. The Act is UK legislation and any changes to it will be taken through Parliament and will apply to all UK regions. The medical use of controlled drugs here in Northern Ireland is permitted through the Misuse of Drugs Regulation Northern Ireland 2002, which I will refer to as the 2002 regulations going forward. Um, GB has separate regulations called the Misuse of Drugs Regulations 2001 and both sets define the classes of person who are authorised to possess and supply controlled drugs while acting in their professional capacity. So Northern Ireland tends to mirror what goes into the 2001 regulations in GB. Controlled drugs are classified into five different schedules based on an assessment of their medicinal or therapeutic usefulness, the need for legitimate access and their potential harms when misused. Different levels of control apply, with Schedule 1 being the most tightly controlled and Schedule 5 the least tightly controlled. 
The Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, which I will refer to as the ACMD going forward, was set up under the 1971 Act as an independent body which provides advice to government about the harm and misuse of drugs that could create a problem in today's society. The ACMD makes recommendations to government on the control of these dangerous or otherwise harmful drugs, including their classification under the Act and scheduling under its regulations. Moving on to benzodiazepines, which are the subject of the, of the statutory rules. Benzodiazepines are a class of agents that work in the central nervous system, for example, diazepam and temazepam, and are prescribed for a variety of medical conditions, such as alcohol withdrawal, anxiety, panic disorder, or seizures. They make the nerves in the brain less sensitive to stimulation, which has a calming effect. In the past, misuse has arisen from diversion of such medicinal benzodiazepines, but synthetic processes for benzodiazepine manufacture are now freely available, and many illicitly manufactured benzodiazepine compounds have been encountered, encountered in recent years. These can evade local national drug misuse legislation, at least initially, and can often be bought in bulk, usually via the internet. In light of concerns about their abuse potential, the ACMD, the Council, reported in April 2020 following a review of 13 novel benzodiazepines reported to the European database on new drugs. The ACMD report states that there is evidence from drug seizure data of prevalence for three of the 13 compounds they reviewed in the UK and these are fluoralprazolam, flunitrazolam and norfludiazepam. Social harms and harms to others found during the ACMD review associated with benzodiazepine use include criminal activity, aggression and violence, risk-taking behaviours, suicide ideation and concurrent substance use disorders. Numbers of drug seizures have been greatest for fluoralprazolam and this compound has also been associated with 12 deaths in the UK at March 2020. The ACMD recommended that owing to their harm and prevalence in the UK, the three novel benzodiazepines should be controlled as Class C drugs under the 1971 Act. And this will be brought forward, as I said earlier, on a UK-wide basis by the UK government and will come into force on the 18th of August 2021. In addition, because the three novel benzodiazepines have no known medicinal use in the UK, the ACMD recommended that they should also be placed under Schedule 1 of the Misuse of Drugs Regulations for England, Scotland and Wales. Moving on to the statutory rules, the purpose of the first statutory rule, the Misuse of Drugs Amendment Regulations NI 2021, which is before the committee, is necessary to implement the advice from the ACMD for the Northern Ireland equivalent regulations. It will replicate amendments which are being taken forward by the Home Office and will keep Northern Ireland in line with GB. Should Northern Ireland not align with GB, there would be a disparity in the controls relating to these dangerous substances and therefore a health and safety risk to members of the public in Northern Ireland. Placing these drugs in Schedule 1 to the 2002 regulations will mean that they will be subject to the tightest controls. The ACMD's addendum advice also recommended that the three benzodiazepines should be designated under Section 4 of the 1971 Act as drugs which have no legitimate medicinal use. This will be achieved by the second SR before the committee, the Misuse of Drugs Designation Amendment Order Northern Ireland 2021. 
which will add the three novel benzodiazepines to Schedule 1 of the Misuse of Drugs Designation Amendment Order Northern Ireland 2001. The effect is that they will be designated as having no legitimate medicinal use, as I said, and no recognised use outside research or other special purposes. Similar amendments are being made to the equivalent legislation for England, Scotland and Wales. In terms of next steps, and subject to the committee's agreement, we propose to make and lay the statutory rules on the 28th of July 2021, with a coming into operation date of the 18th of August 2021. A letter will also be issued to key stakeholders to make them aware of the forthcoming changes to the controls of these drugs. I'd like to take this opportunity to apologise to the committee for the tight timescale for consideration of these two SRs. In hindsight, an earlier draft of these SRs could have been shared with the committee, along with the SL1s, further in advance of the summer recess, but this has been noted for future statutory rules. So Canice and I are now happy to answer any questions members might have. Okay, thank, thank you, you, Isabel. Um, yeah. Um, so, I suppose my my query would be, and I know we have we have dealt. I think we have we have dealt with a similar one of these previously. So, obviously, these happen from time to time, as as a illegal products and a come on the market. So, in relation to that, if if medical staff here, a third sector organisation on the streets here, start to pick up a concern around, say for example we had back space some time ago available through head shops if we pick up, do we have the ability to bring these things in quickly enough or, or, or on our own based on what we're seeing on the ground and how does that interlink with the devolution of the health service here versus the, the frameworks and structures and are there, are there unnecessarily unnecessary delays in terms of what's happening on the ground with getting these types of regulations into place? Canis, would you like to answer that one? <laughs> um, sure. I think that I think any psychoactive substance now, like space or any of these novel benzos or other similar chemicals uh, prior to the introduction of the Psychoactive Substance, Substances Act in 2016, uh, that possibly would have been the case, you know, where there, there might have been a delay, you know, in statutory control of, of such chemicals and compounds. But with the introduction of the Psychoactive Substances Act in 2016, any psychoactive substances already controlled under that. So if there was a new a, a new chemical that had similar effects, that's already controlled by that. These are they still sort of controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act, sort of ramp it up a bit and uh, increase the penalties and increase the penal penalties for that so there are there is no there's no knock-on effect on on devolution in my opinion okay okay i'm going to go across two members then so i first of all have jonathan and then pam and then paula I, I, paula's hand was up i'll check with paula if she does have a question so I'll go to jonathan first and then pam thank you chair can you hear me yes yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, no, look, I, I'm more than happy to support the, the statutory rules. Uh, I suppose there's an increase in misuse and, and abuse uh, across the board. So, so more than happy with that. But I think it would be useful as a side to, to use the opportunity to get more detail on how the controlled substances regime across the United Kingdom will function 
under the terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol and whether there is a potential of, of any level of divergence between regions. So, so can I ask, the explanatory memorandum refers to the 1971 Act, which governs controlled substances on a UK-wide basis. Has this been affected by the protocol and are there any implications for authorisation of medical professionals to dispense these drugs on a UK-wide basis? So, uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act is unaffected by any protocol or any any European uh, exit matters. Um, so, well, the second question related to the health professionals. Sorry. Yeah, I, I've asked about has the pro has this been affected by the protocol? You said that it hasn't, but I also asked: Is there any implications of authorization of medical of medical professionals to dispense these drugs on a UK wide basis? These these specific drugs were were in question uh, aren't medicines, so they have no medicinal use. So there would be no impact on that. Thank you, thank you, Chair. Thank you, thank you. Jonathan uh, Palm. Go ahead, please. Thanks, Chair. Um, I'll just um, give Palm a second. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it just takes a while for it to last on yet here, but. Um, thanks, Chair, and thanks for that, Isabel and Canis. And just on the back of, of uh, Johnny's question there, I just wanted to check with you whether ACMD review contained any specific recommendations or concerns about these substances in relation to Northern Ireland. Um, what, what, what the, can I answer that, Canis? you okay with me answering this? Um, in terms of the report itself, it did show um, in terms of deaths, Scotland was the worst in terms of deaths related to benzodiazepines. 85% of 792 deaths in 2018 were in relation to, if you like, street benzos or this, the kinds of benzos that we're trying to control today. 30% um, related to medicines, benzos or benzodiazepines. Now, our um, Northern Ireland Statistics and Research Agency stats, they record benzodiazepine-related deaths where benzodiazepines are mentioned on the death, death certificate. Unfortunately, we don't know whether they are medicinal benzodiazepine deaths or whether they are street. And that's maybe something that um, we, can, we can think about going forward. But at the moment, that's not clear. But I can tell you that in 2009, there were uh, 28 deaths um, linked to benzodiazepines in Northern Ireland, compared to 102 deaths in 2019. Now, that's a huge increase over that period. Yeah, yes, thank you, Isabel. Yes, that's okay. quite... Yeah, it, that's, yes, that, quite, it shows the importance of, of this it legislation. So it thank does you indeed. That. You're yeah, welcome. Thank you. thank you. Yeah. Okay, I had a hand raised from Paula, so I just want to check with Paula. Uh, Paula, do you have a question for uh, Paula no. in relation to this? No, Chair, thank you. You actually asked the question um, that I was going to ask. Thank you very much, Paula. Okay. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Isabel and Canis. Uh, I don't have any oh, other indication. I'll just check with the clerk. Yes, clerk? Carol was wanting in for a question. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so go yeah. ahead then, Carol. It's just a quick question, um, and Isabel's actually covered it. Um, the coroner has indicated in previous deaths um, that they couldn't indicate they couldn't determine where the the benzos came from so i mean that is but the fact that there's big a big increase is quite alarming 
Um, Canis, I, I wasn't clear. It wasn't clear. So the twenty sixteen Act um, in relation to um, substances covers anything that crops up new, regardless what the compounds are. Um, is that what you were saying? And then the last question that I have is, um, given so I, I welcome any addition. You know, the legislation is going to protect and look at safeguarding around drugs and medicines, but given the fact that um, we are being sought over the internet quite a lot, what safeguards will, will be brought in as part of this uh, statutory rule? So the, the, the Psychoactive Substances uh, Act, uh, is the, the chemicals or compounds caught under that are, is quite broad in its definition. So I think it reads as any substance that's capable of producing a psychoactive psychoactive effect in a, in a human. So it is quite broad. Broad brush cell would encompass basically A and other, is my understanding of that. So they were controlled uh, under that legislation. Uh, in terms of sort of the controls or uh, in terms of the use and monitoring, I think was the second question. I think you know that, that's really undertaken by law enforcement by, you know, Border Force, Police, NCA, uh, law enforcement agencies like that would be responsible for monitoring and interceptions and uh, basically disrupting. It's usually linked to organised crime, so it would be uh, more in that realm rather than ourselves in health. Okay, thank you. Carl, anything further? It's just in terms of, you know, can, I mean, does the NOR take a different approach when it comes to the misuse of drugs act, for example, uh, or even indeed removing substances and changing their grade or their, their class? Is that down to our Department of Health or what way does that work? Oh, the, the, the misuse of drugs acts are reserved matter, so it's UK wide and the regulations are devolved, but the actual controls under the Act in terms of what's a Class A drug, what's a Class B or C drug, that's a reserved matter. So we don't have input into that. Okay. okay um, I just want to check with, with uh, the clerk again. Uh, clerk, any further indications? Jonathan, is that hand up again or is, is that up previously? It is, sure. It's just a, a point of clarification and I might have just picked it up wrong. But uh, Candace had said that, you know, the controlled substance wasn't used in medicines. And then I think Isabel went on to say it's used in 30% of medicines. It's just, it was maybe I've picked that up wrong. Can you maybe clarify? Yeah, sorry. What I was saying was 30% of uh, deaths in Scotland were related to medicinal benzodiazepines. Um, so those that would be um, prescribed, you know, like temazepam, diazepam. But, you know, those deaths would be linked to kind of poly drug misuse where uh, someone's taken a maybe taken a stimulant and then wants to bring themselves down from a high. And they've used benzodiazepines, which resulted in breathing problems and potentially, you know, and there have and been deaths. That's what I was saying. You know, 85% of 792 deaths in 2018 were linked to the street Benzodiazepines, which are the, the kind that we are trying to control today, whereas the 30% related deaths, this is in Scotland now, were related to medicinal benzodiazepines. 
Sorry, I can't, I can't hear. Yeah, no, okay, so, so yes, that, that's sort of a better explained. So what I'm asking then, I suppose my original question to Candice was of that 30%, obviously there is some uh, medically controlled aspects of this. Um, will there be any issues arising from, from um, those that are medically administered uh, as a result of this change? No, the, the, this, the, the, this change is really still three named specific compounds. Uh, so they aren't used in medicine and they, they can't be used in medicine once uh, if and when this legislation comes in. So there'll be no, no change. Okay. No, I, th I, think, I think I understand that now. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. And I think that is actually a very salient point around the recording of the information and where, where the cause or, or drugs that have played a factor in the death come from in terms of dealing with it. I think, it, I think it's interesting that Scotland seemed to have better figures there. That data is all, is all hugely important in terms of coming up with uh, solutions. Again, based on the on the on the old truism that what gets measured gets done in a way. So I don't know is is there is there any are there any plans here in to, in in our in in terms of improving the capturing of data and the reporting of data as to the cause of death. Well, to be to be honest, Chair, that's really for our health development policy branch. You know that that question is something that I'm quite happy to take back to them because I mean they 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 would be interested and in looking at you know what what kinds of um, substances are being abused and the recording of that would be something I'm sure that they would have a lot of input into. So if you're content, I will take that. They did say if there were any questions to bring them back to them and they would write uh, in response to the committee. So if you're content, yeah. I will do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank sure. you. And yeah, because I, I, I'll come back to you, Jonathan. I also have, I also have been dealing with with a family in my own constituency, and I realise this is a wider problem. But there are issues around sertraline and different drugs, and if we can't track and trace the 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 uh, the issues, then they're, they're harder to deal with. I also know that my colleague Arlia Flynn, as a result of some of those discussions, is doing a significant piece of work around psychological autopsies, and again, those will rely on accurate information in order to see how we can better assess cause of death and how we can we can deal with those. So we'll come back to you now, Jonathan. Yeah, no, sure. I, I think Briefly. that's a, a very good point that you raise in terms of how that data is presented, because I think the, the way Isabel demonstrated the, the Scottish model actually further clarified in our heads where the problem actually may lie. Uh, I know I have dealt with some very sensitive cases here in my constituency whereby the ease of access to some of these controlled substances via the internet uh, has caused uh, suicide uh, in, in my own constituency, and, and I think that's something that is very much unregulated and, and very much under the radar. Uh, just to uh, further tease out on that, uh, I suppose probably the wording of it would would need to be clearer as well, because um, I understand what you're now saying that the, the particular aspects of the substance that are under review in this particular piece of regulation are not the same as this, the the ones that would be administered uh, uh, medicinally via the counter. I am correct on that. Yes, just you are. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Okay, thank you. So, listen, uh, I'd like to thank both Isabel and Canis for appearing at that committee this morning and for presenting your your uh, the, the, the briefing to us and for dealing with, with members' questions. And we will now go ahead with our formal consideration of the okay. of the SL ones. Thank you and good luck and take care. Thank you thank very you. much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Okay, members, thank you for that. So we'll go then. The first one is uh, at item 10, SL1.
The Misuse of Drugs Amendment Regulations, NA 2021, I refer members to tab 10 of the pack. Um, are members content that the department makes that statutory rule? Yeah, members are content, thank you. The second one then, item 11, is the Misuse of Drugs Designation Amendment Order, NA 2021, which I refer members to tab 11 of your pack. Are members content that the department makes that statutory rule? Yeah, members content. Thank you. And uh, members, we have we have sought some additional, or there's a commitment there to bring back some additional um, uh, suggestions, which I think could be useful. So we follow that and, and await a response on that. Um, moving on then, I, members, to an additional agenda item, which is uh, around the organ and tissue donation deemed consent bill, which we have touched upon with the minister earlier on. Members will be aware that this bill was introduced in the Assembly on Monday, the 5th of July. Um, normally, the committee would wait until a bill has passed its second stage and formally referred to the committee before issuing a call for evidence. However, as we are approaching the end of the mandate, I suggest that the committee proceed with its call for evidence on the bill over summer recess to make best use of the time that, that's available to us. Um, I'll just go to Clerk, maybe just to the Clerk, maybe, and, and, and take his view on this as well, or maybe can give the committee a bit of a steer, and then we'll take committee members' opinions in terms of how we should or could proceed with that. Go ahead, Keith, please. Thanks, Chair. Again, it's just to highlight that under normal circumstances, we, the committee wouldn't go for a call for evidence until after second stage. Um, that's because, in theory, there's a risk it doesn't pass second stage. Um, in the past, it has been done on executive bills, um, and the theory behind this item in particular is it would allow the committee to have a slightly longer consultation period, whereas if we waited until second stage, you're probably looking mid-September, which means you're probably only going to have maybe four or five weeks at the most um, to do a consultation. So um, this just really gives a bit longer to um, uh, this is going to be a, an area of a, a lot of interest from not just from organisations but from the public as well. Um, so it was just to allow a bit more time for that consultation period. Okay, and and I'll take members' views, but also if members could uh, could indicate around views on the length of the consultation. Um, if we went for Friday the twenty fourth of September as a closing deadline, that would give a consultation period of just over nine weeks. So I think it would be very useful in terms of time and time pressures if we can get the ball rolling over the summer period and use that summer period as part of the consultation. I'm very conscious and, and members are aware that we're looking at a situation where we will be dealing with six bills in the autumn. So I think anything that we can do to uh, to provide consultation uh, opportunities and to write as long as possible should be, should be taken. So would members have any views or any particular issues uh, in relation to that that they want to raise? No, I think members are broadly content with that proposal. So um Sure. So are you are you yes, go ahead, Jerry. Thanks, Chair. Sure. Just yeah, just to obviously welcome the, the bill reaching reaching the floor. I think it's obviously very welcome for for, for um for Dahi and, and, and many others. Um I suppose on on the dates, I mean I would be supportive of uh going um, calling for the evidence over the summer, so there's not a delay uh, on the bill uh, proceeding and us uh, getting evidence. And also, is there an option of sticking with the nine weeks for now um, and then extend it for another three if there's a 
a lack of uh, engagement or lack of consultation um, responses is, is that an option we can consider? So we, we agree the nine weeks now, and then if you know, say for talk sake, the start of September, there's um, evidence that we haven't uh, received, we can extend that for another two weeks or so. Is that an option to, to consider? I'll go back. I have I have Paula there, and I'll go back to the clerk again as well after with with queries on this. Uh, I suppose I suppose I see I see your point, Jerry. I suppose the only thing that I'd be concerned about is that it's likely that the vast majority of the con- of the replies and responses will come in on the last week, if indeed not on the last day. And I think we've all been there ourselves as well as so it might be hard to to, to gauge that. And so I'm I'm not sure, but anyway, it's it's a, it's a, an interesting idea. I'll go to Paula, and then I'll anyone else, and then I'll come back to the clerk. Paula, um, and then Arlea, yeah. thanks, Thank you, Chair. Um, and I, I think as long as possible is probably um, the position I would take on this. But uh, over the last 24 hours, I have received two very sensitive emails from, from constituents um, regarding their aspirations for what the Adoption Bill would, would um, deliver um, for issues that they've been grappling with for years. And I'm just wondering, because of the time of year, we're heading into the summer period, the kids have got off school, a lot of people have you know, down tools, so to speak, and I'm just wondering, can we refresh our social media call or you know, give a wee boost in about four weeks time just in case people have missed the, the call for evidence at this stage um, because I just think there's some people out there who, and given the fact there's 160 clauses etc I think is a huge bill both bills um, are really really important and I just don't want people to miss the opportunity to feed in at the earliest opportunity. Thank you, Paula. And I'm just uh, checking with other members. Any other uh, views or suggestions or additions? I wasn't sure, Arlea, if you were indicating there. Can you just confirm yes or no on that? No. Okay, so um, I'll go back, Clerk, then, in terms of potential extension and also that, and I think that's a very useful proposal around a refresher message, especially given the fact that uh, with holiday time and everything like that over the summer, I think a refresher, a refresher could be a useful idea. So I'll go back to you, Clerk. Yeah, just the just the outline. We're talking specifically on the organ donation bill. We will be talking about the adoption bill in a couple of minutes. Um, but in relation to the the chair's right, we have found from experience that ninety percent of submissions come in within the last week. Now, what we would do normally allow is a wee bit of grace period at the end. Um, you know, so why would we say the closing date's going to be the say, for example, the 24th of September, we would probably allow till the end of the month as such. But again, we can certainly um, keep putting it out on the social media. Like, um, as you'll be aware, we put it out on the committee's website. Um, it goes out on a, a, a newspaper ad um, when it's launched. Maybe we can look at doing that at another time, um, maybe in September. Um, and again, members can um, tweet out about it. Um, we will certainly um, get it out over the, the summer and into September as well on the committee's um, Twitter feed as well. Okay. Okay, thank you. So then our members content that we do in terms of the organ, and, the, and this is the organ and tissue donation deemed consent bill, we are coming on to the adoption bill. But in relation to the organ, um, and tissue donation bill, uh, would members be content that we proceed with a call to evidence over the summer recess? Content, yep, sure. Members are content. And um, 
So are members also content that the call for evidence be placed on the committee's webpage week commencing 19th of July and a notice placed in the local press and on social media? The clerk will advise members of the date it will be advertised and go live on the website. Are members content with that? Okay. Yep, thank you. And are members content with the draft call for evidence, which is a tab 16.4 of table papers? Yeah, members content. And further, are members content with the draft notice at tab 16.5 of table papers? And then in addition to the call for evidence, the committee will also write to stakeholders requesting their views on the bill. A draft list of stakeholders from statutory and professional and charitable bodies is at tab 16.3 of the table papers. Are members content with the draft stakeholder list as outlined at 16.3? Sorry, Chair, just to say, ahead, we're happy to, to take any further organisations that members may have. Um, so if you want to send yeah. any further organisations in um, to myself, we'll get um, the call for evidence issued out to them as well. So members members can do that following the meeting. What, when, when do you need those in by, Keith, to make sure that we have it in time? Well, we'll be issuing out the call for evidence on week commencing the 19th. So if you can get it in, I suppose, by the 19th of July... Um, we can make sure that all letters go out that week. Okay, so if members have additional stakeholders that aren't currently on the list, they can uh, suggest those forward to, to the clerk, okay? Okay, and um, so that, that deals with the with the, uh, the organ and tissue bill. We're then going on to, and I'll ask the uh, clerk to outline the process for the autism bill. So that's another bill that's coming. It's a, it's a private member's bill. It's brought in Pam's name. I believe it's from uh, the, the all-party group. But I'll ask the clerk to outline, and then I'll go to Pam. Thanks, Chair. Just the outline, again, this was introduced um, this week, first stage. Um, second stage will be due at some point in September. Um, it, it's the same, I suppose, process as uh, an executive bill. Um, the, the issue for the committee to consider is... Um, in relation to the committee's call for evidence on this bill. Um, generally on private members' bills, um, and it's no reflection on this bill or any other bill, call for evidence don't go out until after second stage because there is a risk that, again, it doesn't pass second stage, whereas with executive bills, not that it's guaranteed, but um, there, there's less risk for it um, passing second stage. So. I suppose I'm keen to see the committee's views on whether it sticks with that process or whether it does want to, to go out early. Um, and again, that's up to the, the the committee. Okay. Um, and I, 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 Pam, I'll, I'll bring you in at that point. I, I realise there is that that uh, that you are the the also the mover of the bill. So, but do you want to say anything there, Pam? And then I'll go to other members. Thanks, Chair, and thanks, Keith. Yeah, I suppose just to say, uh, first, I'm delighted that, that we've got to the stage of introduction of the of the PMB for for autism, the amendment bill. Uh, so that's great news going forward. And I suppose, given the fact that it's a little bit different in terms of um, a private member's bill, in that it's seeking to amend legislation that's already in place. And given that, um, it's in my name because I'm chair of the old party group on autism, and that this. Um, proposed legislation is supported by by an all party group. I think that probably um, 
really does um, show favour to to this potential piece of legislation that that, that it will uh, get past the second stage. So I I certainly am, would be happy enough to, for um, the consultation process to, to happen earlier rather than later if that's useful because we know that, that there are great time pressures uh, on now that we're approaching the end of the, the mandate here. So I think uh, more time would be better as as it is with the other. Uh, pieces of legislation that we're going to be looking at coming into the future months. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. And Claire, can I ask in relation to managing all of the evidence, and we're going to go on to the adoption one, which which is now in in, a, in, a, in another kind of a unique situation, but in terms of managing all the information coming in and dissecting that and disseminating it and all of that, um, are there any particular issues or suggestions or ways to address that? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, it, it's still something that we're considering how, how best to manage it. Um, essentially, it just comes down to timetabling, um, and it will be on the basis that we may well have three or four calls for evidence out at once. Um, they may have the same dates or different dates for submissions to come in, um, but the process at the end of um, summarising and considering is I suppose the, the heavy part so it does mean that maybe on some we might say that say for example the focus for October will be on X bill, the focus on November will be on Y but you know we're still currently considering how best to manage that process um, but as far as the call for evidence goes you know that's something that we don't really need to worry about work-wise until the date closes I suppose, you know, and that's where the bulk of the work, work is for the committee team. Um, but the, the dates of um, going out for, for consultation and the length of consultation is, is a call for the committee. We could certainly do you a, a staggered um, call for evidence, which would give a couple of weeks between each, um, which might give us a wee bit of space. But um, I, I'm certainly happy to, to go with what the committee wants on this one. So, any other views, members? Then, essentially, we're we're looking at a situation of of going kind of outside of strictly normal processes. Uh, Pat has outlined the fact that this is this is really an APG one. So, what's members' views in terms of going ahead now, ahead of second stage, with the consultation? Paula, just just to support Pam on this, I I fully agree with what she said there around all the parties are on the APG, and it's it's really. Good to see it coming forward. So I would support it going out call for evidence at this stage. Carol? Yeah, I agree. And particularly given that it's amending legislation rather starting from scratch, notwithstanding the work pressures on the the team, but certainly I would support that as well. Okay, so I think broadly supportive. I don't see anyone really indicating any, any anything else. So I think I think Keith, there is a support there that we do look at at putting out the call for evidence. Well, chair, if, if members are content, we'll we'll draw up some of the the call for evidence and things like that, and have a look at the date. If members are broadly content to give it um, again similar length of time, um, we'll get documents out to members for consideration. And again, the same with the stakeholder list. If there's um, particular stakeholders that members want included in the call for evidence, we're happy to take that on board. But we will provide members with a with an email outlining the process for this then, and with some suggestions in relation to um, the timeline. 
Yeah, and I think I think the other indication that's in support of that proposal is the fact that the debate in the assembly clearly a. Uh, drew widespread recognition of the significant difficulties that people who have a have autism or people who are curing for people with autism. Um, so I think there's broad support. So I think that's indicative of of a intent in terms of of bringing that forward. So, okay, thank you Chair, for that, members. Chair, uh, yeah, go ahead, Pam. Sorry, go just ahead. before you move on, I suppose I should have officially declared an interest <laughs> as actually <laughs> uh, being the new member on the private members' bills. So just to put that on record. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Pam. Okay, members. So I'm moving on then, and I will ask the clerk to outline the process in relation to the adoption and children's bill. Um, I will draw members' attention before we go to the clerk to the written statement from the minister and correspondence from the speaker in relation to the introduction of the bill and the committee's call for evidence at tabs 12.6 and 12.7 of the table papers. So, clerk, could you please outline where this bill is at? Uh, and again, this is this is I think actually a recognition of the assembly reacting and responding to real issues out there on the ground and, and moving uh, proactively and indeed um you know not allowing not allowing barriers to be put in the way of legislative processes and moving quickly uh, or as quick quicker than may have been the case so i think that's generally welcome but if i could ask the the clerk just to outline a bit more detail on the process now where it sits Certainly, Chair, just the outline, um, the adoption in Children's Bill was um, sent to the Speaker's office, I think it was um, not Monday there, but the Monday before that. The, the Speaker's office do undertake a process um, in relation to um, looking at competence of the bill, um, which uh, there's a minimum seven-day turnaround, which meant that it wasn't able to be introduced in time. At, um, for either Monday or Tuesday just passed. So it will mean that introduction of the bill won't be until September. Um, we have had a letter from the Speaker and we've had correspondence from the Minister um, requesting, well, the, the correspondence from the, the Minister is requesting the committee to do its call for evidence, um, essentially pre-introduction. The letter from the Speaker outlines there's nothing to stop the committee doing its um, call for evidence pre-introduction. Um, the only thing to highlight is that the Speaker's office is still undertaking its work on competence and therefore have said it would not be wise to do the, um, the call for evidence until that check's completed and we're expecting that check to be completed probably the week commencing the 19th. Um, so Again, the, the option is there. I would highlight that a committee hasn't done this before, pre-introduction. Um, but as highlighted with the speaker, or sorry, with the minister, there's particular time constraints um, in relation to this bill, and I think the size of the bill as well. Um, again, the speaker has outlined it would be the committee's decision as to whether it wants to do its call for evidence pre-introduction or wait until introduction in September. Okay, so um, yeah, go ahead, Paula. I'll take members' views now. Go ahead, Paula, please. Uh, Chair, apologies for that confusion earlier. Um, I, I would be um, content to even wait until the 19th of July, if that's the month that um, the clerk was indicating there. I think even the fact that if we put out three calls of evidence at the same time, one might get lost in, in, in the on the publicity. So I think even if we staggered it a few weeks, 
until the Speaker's office came back and, and ruled on the competency, then I think we've worked really, really lost two weeks or even a week and a half and the majority of people probably switched off for the July holidays anyway. Uh, any other views from members in relation to that? So the, what we're balancing at this at this point in time is the 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 risk that the, we would go to consultation as a committee and that the bill would not be moved. I have to say I detect and I have spoken to the minister. Um, I detect a determination by the minister and by the executive, and there, there has been clear evidence that that this has been made a priority. So I think I think I personally will be reasonably satisfied, but but willing to take views of members that it will be moved. Um, and also we do have that dynamic around around the uh, best use of time. And uh, given that this is such an extensive bill, I think Paul is, is a good suggestion there that, that we don't give a final indication. We, we give a, a general indication today, maybe, but that we confirm that then based on the speaker signing off once we once it's over that that additional stage and the speaker has has confirmed that it's within competence that we then kind of almost uh, pre 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 indicate that that being the case we would then be happy to go to consultation any other Chair. thoughts from members yeah Chair, Tom, yes. go ahead. just to say yes I agree with both your comments and paulos i think it sounds very sensible uh, and a good way forward i'm not sure i understand Okay, somebody doesn't understand, but I don't think it's a member of the committee, so we'll we'll ignore that for now. Um, do, do any committee, do any other committee members who do understand have any other comments in relation to this? No. Okay, okay, members. So, so, uh, Clerk, are you content with that? And and can you um, could, would there be a process whereby we simply email members to confirm that the speaker has made a decision one way or the other, and then we would we would then implement the decision of the discussion today. We, we uh, we'll do the the preparation work, um, and then once we get confirmation from the speaker that um, it's been signed off, I'll email members out again on the same basis with um, suggestions in relation to um, timings, length of um, consultation, and then again the same issue with stakeholders. You know, we'd be happy to take that on board. So, yeah, we, we, we can certainly manage it that way and then um, get final sign-off from the, the committee once the speaker, um, speaker's office finishes their consideration. Yeah, and and I will just indicate that all of that all of that churn will require members to to be alert to their emails and things over the next number of weeks. There there will be messages, and we're undertaking to kind of almost work on in that in that format in order to get all these wheels rolling and all these all these legislative uh, procedures uh, into into place, recognizing the fact that the mandate has been is is short and time is short for these for these items. So you're content there. Is there anything further in relation to any of those, Keith, or is that is that uh, everything in relation to those? No, no, that, that that's ground, Chair. Okay, okay. So, so members, um, we I'm going moving on then to correspondence, and we have already indicated in correspondence that we are content for members to email their comments to the committee office by 15th of July, so they can be forwarded to the department. That's on the urology uh, item, item 12.2 is a departmental response regarding vaccination alternatives for those with latex allergies. Um, I'll, I'll see if members have any comments. I I do want to go back to it myself. I was That issue was raised with me, actually, when Patricia Donnelly was with us in committee. I'll go back to the uh, to the individual who had raised the concern. 
it would appear from the response that there's not a widespread problem. There may have been a communication issue or whatever in relation to the individual case. But I, I will I will certainly have a look at that at that uh, correspondence in greater detail and see if there's any need to to uh, refer it back or if that addresses the issue fully. Any other any other comments from members in relation to that item? No, thank you. Are members content therefore to note? Yeah, thank you. And are members content to note uh, uh, all other items on the main correspondence? Yeah, thank you. In terms of table correspondence members, there's a number of further items there that I want to draw to your attention. Item 12.4 is a departmental response to the committee's request for information on the resourcing of the various strategies that the department is introducing. Do members have any comments in relation to that item? No, no, just, not, not sorry, just. Sorry, Chair, just, just to say, appreciate the swiftness with which it was delivered. So, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, appreciate that. And uh, members, therefore, content to note. Yeah, members, content to note. And are members content to note the remaining items of table correspondence? And also, just just in light of and I do I do agree with you, Paula, that that is a very timely response and actually a much more useful response given the time and given how it's related to the current situation. And I think, uh, Clerk, if I could ask you to once again endeavour to return to the department to seek to use the months over the summer to uh, clear up out, outstanding members uh, items of correspondence the committee have. I think it's it's really just. Disappointing. Some of those are. Some of those will soon be over a year out of date when we when we go past the end of July. So uh, maybe to acknowledge first of all, but also to ask that outstanding items are addressed urgently. So members are content there to note the remaining items of table correspondence. Thank you. So I, members, I'm going to move in now to arrangements for dealing with correspondence over the summer. Um, I can advise members that in previous summers, correspondence will be placed in the post box on the ECP system at the end of July and again at the end of August, and members will be alerted that that has been deposited in that electronic communication system. If any member requires assistance in accessing the system, and, and I recognize uh, some members have expressed a wee bit of concern, uh, please contact the committee office if, if that maybe will help to address any access issues that you may be having. All correspondence then will be formally considered at the first meeting after recess, and I'm going to come on to that as well. In relation to urgent correspondence then, the clerk will issue to members for comment and suggested action, so that will come via email to members if there's something that needs urgent response from us. So again, members will uh, need to keep an eye to that. So um, in terms of forward work programme members, I refer you to the draft forward work programme at tab 13.1 of the pack, which contains a list of issues that the committee is committed to scheduling next session. Um, would members be content? Um, and I, I realise that this actually is an additional meeting and, and also we're, we're planning to meet on the 9th of September, which will be before plenary starts again. But would members also agree to hold an additional informal planning session on Thursday the 2nd of September? Again, for me, that's in light of how how busy a schedule we now have, additionally busy to what we have been operating with. And I think it will be useful for us to get together um, in an informal session to do a bit of planning as to how we, we manage the balance of all of those things. So I'll come back on the suggestion for the Thursday the 2nd for a formal agreement, but I'll go to Paula and then other members for discussion. Um, thank you, Chair. No, I'm, I'm happy to meet before plenary starts. 
It was just to come back on the um, issue I'd raised with the health minister around paediatric scoliosis. Um, the meeting last night with the parents was incredibly harrowing. The length of time parents or children are having to wait for their first appointment, etc., etc. But the impact on their wee bodies, if the curvature of the spine is not detected and not, not dealt with, they can impact in terms of their organs being crushed on the surgery being life-threatening. I mean, it was really a very, very um, impactful um, meeting I had last night, and I'm wondering if, if we can put in the informal meeting category to engage with those parents. Uh, we know Megan's story. Um, I think her, her mother had her fundraise 35000 to take her to Turkey. She's one of a, a good number. So I think that there's it's a really, really important piece of um, the elective care story. We should, should engage with to give us a better understanding of how waiting lists really impact on not just the child, but the whole family dynamic. Thank you, Chair. Okay, and would members be content that that be added to the informal uh, sessions? And as as we have been doing, that uh, Paula maybe would take on to facilitate and arrange that, and then members will be invited along. Yeah, are members content with that proposal? Yeah. So members, then back to the Thursday, the second of September. Um, would members be in agreement that we hold an informal uh, planning session on that date? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, do members have any other business then today for today's meeting? Chair. Yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Thanks, Chair. Um, I had a meeting with the Pancreatic Cancer Organization um, yesterday, and they informed me that the percentage of, of people with the cancer, uh, they get offered PERT, which is the Pancreatic Enzyme Replacement Therapy. Here is only 47%, so uh, less than half of people with uh, pancreatic cancer get offered this this drug, which you know offers some some assistance uh, to deal with the um, deal with the cancer. So um, that's an obviously a very worrying figure, and I just want to propose that we write to the minister to make him or and or uh, the minister and his officials uh, to make him aware aware of this figure and to find out why the figure is so low and, and what is being done to address this uh, discrepancy. Um, if that's okay. Okay, members content with that. Okay, thank you. Um, go ahead, Orlea. I don't. I'm hoping not jumping ahead of because I know there's um, someone else has their hand raised, but not to take away from the the important point that Jerry's just made. So around that that drug, I think that um, I fully support Jerry's proposal to direct the minister around that. Um, um, and it's not to conflate the two issues, but there, there's also um, it just brought it to my mind. There's also a similar issue in relation to people um, who are suffering with um, pulmonary fibrosis of the lungs. Um, and I know that there's issues there that people are finding it difficult to access the medications um, for that disease until I think their lung capacity has to reach um, at like 80% until they can get the medication to try and treat it. So I know that... Um, Pam is at Pam and, and Paula. I'm sorry if I'm leaving others out. Are on the the long health um, all party group, but just as Jerry was raising that issue around the um, that cancer treatment, if we could maybe you know even just send in a wee note to the department just for for an update on the the pulmonary fibrosis medications as well, because I know that there's a lot of people out there living with that condition and again aren't getting um, fair access to those those drugs. 
Chair. Okay, thank you. And apologies, Cara, you did have your hand raised. Just before I come to you, Cara, can we agree with uh, our members in agreement with our day's suggestion there? Chair, yeah, just I'll come on back that to you. point. Yeah, go ahead, just Pam, on yeah. that point, I don't have another point. And to, to, to thank Olea for that, that's absolutely right. I think it's really vital that we that we raise this this issue. And we know there has been some movement on 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 that drugs issue, but it's probably more complex than than most of us know. But it is really important that those people with struggling with IPF are are given access to these treatments, which really do make a difference. And it's quite actually perverse that they were having to wait until their uh, lung capacity was you know drastically reduced before they were able to to access that. So thank you, Orlea, for for raising that. I want to support her uh, in her um, call. Thank you. And I think members clearly in agreement with that as well. Thank you both. And Cara, apologies, your hand was raised there. I, I missed up and I took her okay. in. Go ahead, Cara, please. No worries, Chair. Um, thank you very much. Um, yeah, just around, I had a meeting last Friday with the Royal College of Emergency Medicine uh, and I found it very helpful uh, and it kind of gave uh, more detail about the pressures emergency medicine is feeling, especially with people struggling to see um, their GPs. And one of the statistics around that was in May alone, over 430 patients attended the Royal Victoria Hospital uh, Emergency Department. Um, so I, I just found it very helpful. I think moving forward, when we talk about transforming the health service, um, it would be a good meeting perhaps if they could come before the committee. I'm not too sure, just to, to gauge what other members might feel about that. But uh, I certainly find it um, very helpful. And they also touched on um, the pressures with um, those who feel mentally ill presenting to A&E as well, and perhaps what we could do to support them with that. So. Just a suggestion if potentially they could come before the committee. Yep, okay. And again we can we can discuss that certainly in our informal session. So um Members, I think that's about everything for now. I want to I want to first of all thank each and every one of the members in terms of uh, your commitment and your contribution and your your attendance and and, and uh, everything in terms of what has been a really, really another very, very hectic session of the Health Committee. And I want to thank you all for the manner in which you've conducted yourselves in meeting and how you've engaged with myself and committee staff and all of that has has been exemplary. I think it, I think it really is um, a committee that has worked extremely hard and extremely effectively in very difficult circumstances. I also, uh, and I want to wish all of the members the very best for the, for the summer. And I hope everyone does get some rest. And I think it's it's important that we we do do that because we are going to be facing an extremely uh, difficult uh, and and busy situation in the autumn, even as things sit at present. The other thing I want to do is is also just to reiterate my thanks to the committee clerk and staff for all their assistance throughout the the past session, and to wish them all the very best for a safe and happy summer. And I very very much hope that they do get rested. It's it's a it's 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 an often under considered issue that. Assembly staff are not allowed to take uh, breaks or leave outside of outside of recess time. So I think that's a very important dynamic in working within the assembly. And uh, everyone has worked hard, and everyone does certainly deserve. And I hope gets that break. Um. So that's it, members. If there is something that that arises, uh, as always, we we can look at a at a meeting in on, on the call of the chair if absolutely necessary. I wouldn't consider doing that given the impact it would have unless it's absolutely necessary, but we will keep an eye on the situation. We have committed to coming back for additional sessions at the start of the autumn term, and I, I predict that we will have to hit the ground running very fast at that point in time. So that's all for me today, members. Thank you very much. Please enjoy your summer, and I'll be speaking to you all again in due course.
Gorme Agaf, Agus Beg Islam. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.